0: Welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The ensuing show will change, transform, and otherwise alter you. Good luck.
1: My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you.
0: Greetings, constant listeners. Rock and Randall here, and we're back with our second part of our episode about on writing Stephen King's 2000 treatise on the craft, and also a little bit of an autobiography, which we discussed in last week's episode. Which, uh, if you haven't listened to, it'd be a little weird because this is part two, and part one informs a lot of what we'll be discussing here. That's typically how sequels work. So, uh, why don't we go around and introduce ourselves before we dive into the toolkit? Mike, say hello, and how the hell are you?
2: Hey, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, Randall. Um, this is Michael, <laughs> a memoir of the craft, Rothman. Uh, and yeah, you know, it's it, it's a great Wednesday. Uh, I'm hoping that we have a real awesome heavy storm, because I love when it rains. Just like Shirley Manson of Garbage, I'm only happy when it rains, actually. So how about that? But um, I'm only
3: so happy yeah, when, yeah, when you know, it's
2: I'm complicated. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Who's that saying uh getting cheeky over there? Is that Mike? Oh, I don't
3: know if Mike was done being cheeky. I didn't want to cut him off. Uh, oh, no, I, I love that song. Him. That's like great song. Um great song. And, hi, this is Mel. Just noticed that in her notes on the toolbox section, she has spelled grammar G-R-A-M-M-E-R.
0: <laughs> and- isn't that ah, Kelsey how Kelsey Grammer. Is that how Kelsey Grammar spells it?
3: Uh maybe I just I needed to say something about Kelsey Grammar that I've since forgotten.
0: He posted a great photo of him with some babes at Mar-a-Lago the other day on Twitter that we shared in our boys chat.
1: Oh, that was at Mar-a-Lago.
3: I, I love that you know say that. great photo, like it's comparative, <laughs> like you keep track of other Kelsey Grammar
0: contributions. Let's just say in in the panthe- in the pantheon of Kelsey Grammar photos, it's top tier.
1: That and the one where he says climate change is a myth and where he calls <laughs> off the stage, <laughs> which are like the three the working
3: three as a UN interpreter. Photos.
2: Got it. Well, it's so, only in there because I, I, I watched it's... all of Fraser during the pandemic. He did break then, his. He did.
3: You know. <laughs> he did break his leg. Yeah. Right. Um, no. Last yeah. time it, it, it was like the guy from asshole. Third Eye Blind. This time it's Kelsey Grammer, and I started it, so I can't blame anyone but myself. I'm having a great Wednesday night. I'm excited to get into the fundamentals of writing, the toolbox, mm-hmm. uh, the sort of the more engineering-based <laughs> perspectives that King has,
0: and feeling excited. Yeah, much to discuss. I'm excited to introduce our next guest, which is uh, Dan Caffrey. Say hello.
1: Hey, this is Dan Draven as an Eric Draven Caffrey because it can't oh. rain all the time. Uh, you know, if uh, all <laughs> of you, a may we're listening talking and saying, about the crow now. Uh, you, you've uh, all been listening, saying, "I don't like all this talk about rain. I don't like the rain. I'm, I'm sick of the rain." And you know, if I would stand at the windowsill, put one leg up in silhouette, and with the rain silhouetting behind me, I would say to the little girl, "Can't rain all the time." She'd say, "Eric." Because I love The Crow. This is Dan Crow Caffrey, and I'm happy
0: to Um, be
2: here. My
0: My favorite song about rain is probably Millie Vanillie's Blame It on the Rain.
2: Because you got to blame it on something. Well, they certainly blamed it on themselves. uh, (laughs) All right. Well, anyway. uh, 2000s. On writing.
0: (laughs) Let's talk about on writing. We don't know how
2: to talk, but do we know how to write? (laughs) I know
0: how to talk, and I'm here to talk about on writing. Page 114. This is what King says about... The toolbox. This is the next section. We spent a good chunk of last episode talking about the CV or the autobiography that King sort of uh, uh, front loads the book with to sort of give you some uh, perspective on how a writer's life informs their work. And then we spent a very good deal of a t- uh, good amount of time talking about. Uh, what Writing Is, which is a very short section of the book, but yeah, if you listen to last week's episode, which I'm assuming you did, uh, you probably heard us get a little bit real about our own complicated complicated relationships with writing, I think, which is relevant, I think, because I think any writer uh, has a pretty complex relationship with their own work, but now it's time to get into the nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty, what Stephen King calls the toolbox. I'm going to read this little section from page 114 of the original edition. I want to suggest that to write to your best abilities, it behooves you to construct your own toolbox and then build up enough muscle so you can carry it with you. Then instead of looking at a hard job and getting discouraged, you will perhaps seize the correct tool and get immediately to work. And he talks about toolboxes, uh, writing toolboxes, having multiple levels. And what he basically breaks down in this relatively short section is the three um, elements that he thinks all writers should have in their toolbox. And they're pretty broad, but they're all important. And they're all a little bit different, I think, for every writer. One is vocabulary. One is Kelsey Grammar. Just kidding. Just (laughs) grammar. And the other is... is broadly The Elements of Style. He talks a lot about Strunk and White's book, uh, The Elements of Style, which you probably read in school to some degree. And um, yeah, those three sort of form the basis, I think, of coherent writing, (laughs) producing writing that makes sense. uh, Before you sort of integrate your voice too deeply it's understanding the basics of these mechanics to um you know make sure that you are i think the key word that emerges through a lot of this is clarity and i think um that's a word that more writers should probably internalize because i think clarity is something that is perhaps not as vaunted as it should be when you're talking about writing it's very easy to get uh lost in the details but you know, as King notes, we're always telling a story here, and you want to make sure the reader knows where they are at any given time. But uh, I guess broad thoughts about the toolbox—is this something you think about when you write, Mel? What do you? What would you say?
3: I think this section is so interesting in thinking about what he chooses to address and what he doesn't. It really sounds to me like he's just talking these things over in a bar, which is the whole book, I suppose. And I, I talk about how I like aspects of that in the last episode, but he just like skates over each of these topics. It seems like this is directed at like, like beginners, like like utter beginners. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a visual, like, like hammer to nail approach to these elements that he seems to have like chosen somewhat arbitrarily to me. Like he's not, he doesn't talk about POV. He doesn't talk about tense. He doesn't talk about tone. He doesn't talk about structure. He doesn't talk about linearity or uh, character. So you get the sense that like, this is sort of what he could come up with on short notice as the building blocks <laughs> that are worth consideration. And it's important, but it's, it's just so surface level that I feel throughout this whole section, I can, I, he is on the verge of saying like, I don't know when it works, it just works, but these are what books are made of. If, if you can't manage even this much, I don't know what to tell you. Like he, do, 100%, he doesn't yeah. know how to really like address the unknowable stuff. So he's like, I guess these are the components and it's interesting. Like, it's not boring reading. You kind of get a sense that he's opinionated about like he is opinionated. He like hates the passive voice. And like that, it's always fun to read about people's little quirks and, and what they like and dislike, but there's just nothing that's super applicable from, from here <laughs> to me anymore. Right. Like, it's just so, it's just so casual and vague. Do you guys, do you guys like, Remember, or do you currently like find this like super useful, or like, what do you take from it?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, no, I completely agree mal. and I don't dislike this section because I do think there's value, especially for beginning writers, and I don't want it to make it sound like we're all I, I don't know, Faulkner or something. but. Yeah, I do think at a certain point when you're a writer, once you've done it for long enough, you're not really thinking about about these kind of um, fundamentals and these like raw, tangible uh, uh, fundamentals and the way he is. I, I I do think I have a toolbox as a writer, so I'm sure all of you do too. But it is much more rooted in things like tone, rhythm, um, character. Like when I sit and, and when I sit down and I do a certain thing. Sometimes to my detriment, I can tell, oh, cool, that's one of my little tricks I'm doing. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad in the crutch and it's keep me from doing something a little bit deeper or keep me from breaking my own habits. Um, yeah, I, I, honestly, if I'm being quite frank, it's the section of the book I remember the least, If uh, which I know sounds weird because it's the nuts and bolts of writing, but I think I get a lot more use from the on-living sections and just hearing about even his childhood, the stuff we talked about uh, last week. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't want to write it off because I do think it would be useful maybe for a, someone who's just starting out.
0: Yeah, well, there I are, mean... Oh, I, go ahead, Mike.
1: No, it's okay. You can
0: go on. I was just going to say, there are different types of... I think there are writers who are also uh, grammar heads. You know what I mean? People who really love... <laughs> people who love uh, Kelsey <laughs> People who love sentences, right? Like people who love... Um, a well-constructed sentence. Like people who love using semicolons, you know, stuff like that. Like I've, and a lot of those people end up becoming editors because they're very good at constructing sentences. I've always been, and I think something like this is sort of disinteresting to me. And I think, the vibe I get is it is to King, too. <laughs> like, I, he talks a lot about how hard it was to write this book and how he'd much rather be writing fiction. And I think this is the section that probably made him struggle the most because I don't think he really thinks too much about this stuff. And that's why he's sort of skating over a lot of it and just picking and choosing the things that perhaps regularly surface for him. Because um, I think, like King, I very much learned uh, to write from reading, not really from... Uh, assignments in school you know what I mean so I always got good grades in English but I was never somebody who was particular and like I still don't really consider myself someone who is uh, you know Um, razor sharp when it comes to every grammatical sort of move or where commas go and all that other shit. I very much apply with the King method, which he always says is put the comma wherever you want there to be like a tiny little pause in a sentence. He's like, don't overthink where you're putting commas. But the thing is, you can meet a lot of writers who are very precise about where they put commas um, in a grammatical sense. And obviously, both writers are equal of merit and everything, but I think the vibe I get is something that I relate to because I, I... I started writing by imitating other writers and um, I sort of learned how to write by reading so much that I just kind of copied that. And so it reminds me of like uh, the band Alkaline Trio. Uh, Matt Skibo used to talk about in the old days, like he never really learned how to play guitar in a proper way. He just kind of learned how to do chords. But if people asked him like, Hey, play an F sharp. He's like, I don't know what that, what that is, but he, Uh, knows the sound and can recreate it, but he doesn't know it's called F sharp, you know what I mean? And so, uh, that's sort of how I feel. I think about this kind of stuff sometimes. Like I would never want to teach a class about these sorts of nuts and bolts. You know what I mean?
3: It strikes me just even talking about it now that it's more a list of his dislikes it's like just don't do these things don't do and adverbs, like that's a good don't do passive
2: voice yeah it's
3: it's much less about what you should be doing and much more about like what annoys him
2: yeah which i think makes sense i mean he talks at the end about how this is you know writing is just a learned skill and i think about an exercise in i think high school or middle school probably um Either way, it's irrelevant. But the, the point is, is that there was, a, there was one day, I remember one of my English teachers was like, all right, well, I want you to write out your day-to-day. Like, what is your remedial day like? And, um, you know, so we all did the exercise. And then in reading it aloud, we realized we were forgetting a lot of the things that were part of our day-to-day. And it's because it's something that we're used to. It's something that's built into us. It's something that we don't really think about. We just do. And I think a lot of that is what writing is. And I think that's what he's trying to get in this section. I think if anything, him going back and, and, and mentioning the, you know, the adverbs and a couple other things are probably those, I I mean, it's better to know what not to do than what to do. And I think ultimately the, the takeaway I get from the things to do is what he says about the the line from um and white uh which by the way elements of style was mandatory across my masters and uh my undergrad like it was just like the essential book i had forever and i i had it actually as my recommended recommended book for all my writers i think I we even I, M- mel and randall correct me if i'm wrong i think at groupon at least when i
1: got hired they gave you a copy of it even that was like yeah. way after i'd i I'd, I'd read it that yeah it, it holds is up it's the
3: most pretentious bullshit i've <laughs> ever heard uh, i
1: love it man guy wrote charlotte's yeah. web it, not it i love the book
3: me, is good but... the groupon giving it to us is like yeah, oh yeah. yeah like you're we're really gonna consider what we do here on par with <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Stephen hey it's paying it. the bills but uh yeah. on page There's 133 it. of mine it's it, it's uh, king writes must you write complete sentences each time every time perish the thought if your work consists only in fragments and floating clauses the grammar police aren't going to come and take you away even william strunk the mussolini of rhetoric of rhetoric recognized the delicious pliability of language it's an old observation, he writes, that the best writers sometimes disregard the rules of rhetoric, yet he goes on to add this thought, which I urge you to consider, which I ultimately think is the greatest takeaway for King here, for especially for, which I agree, I think this section is certainly for more budding writers, um, or budding writers that are going to become good to great writers, as King says in this book. Um, he says, unless he is certain of doing well, the writer will probably do best to follow the rules, which is ultimately like what most of my, probably the the, the savviest and the smartest teachers I had, because I remember going into grad school and everyone thought they were bell hooks. They're just writing everything (laughs) randomly and, you know, all (laughs) over the place. And it's, you know, we were in the, the writer's workshop and you could just tell like all of us had the urge to just like stop ourselves and saying like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, who do you think you are? <laughs> which, yeah, like I, I, I lo- and I actually really like bell hooks and I, and I, which is why I don't capitalize any of my tweets usually, but I, R.I.P. the thing is, the thing is, is that, you know, don't worry about that shit early on, you know, like find that stuff later on down the road, like mostly just get this stuff on the page because ultimately I think you're going to get distracted You know, like you're a kid, like messing with HTML on a MySpace page, like, you know, like gotta get it perfect. And it's like, well, just worry about the content itself. Um, and I think that's kind of a great lesson here. And I, and I think it's ultimately something I wish that my, my teachers, maybe an undergrad would have told me about, as opposed to something that was beat over our heads in grad school. You know, it's like, yeah, we don't really know what the fuck's going on with English, it's changing every time it's malleable, yada, 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 having said that lean on the rules because more often than not, you're going to be better following the tracks a little bit. And, and ultimately you can kind of, you know, go off and meander a little bit. Once you know where you're at, you know, Yeah. otherwise you'll end up like Trisha and a girl who loved Tom Gordon. So.
3: Do you guys want to hear my favorite Swiftie? Swifty
2: Swifty? Are you Wait, talking about
0: Taylor
1: Swift?
2: Yeah, are you Taylor Swift no. fans? Or, oh, no. No,
3: you, you know, the Swifties that he references in the oh. book that are, a, it's a type of sentence construction. Oh,
0: like, I didn't read the book. Sorry.
3: Okay. Wait, he's-, uh, oh, uh, he's Well, like you won't get this, Swifty. Randall. Um, yeah, it. Like a Tom, a Tom Swiftie. I think this is Swiftian. probably like the first page of Google results if you Google Tom Swifties, but it's, uh, I really love sled dogs, she growled huskily.
1: <laughs> ah, <laughs> Husky, and it that Husky. works in so many levels
2: <laughs> yeah yeah, uh,
0: yeah the whole um the adverbs thing is is very funny and because he clearly really hates it but he also owns up to doing it himself which is very smart because i i remember on twitter he said something about how oh, he's mm-hmm. never used this particular turn of phrase before. I can't remember what it was. He's like, I've never used that. And writers never showed. And then people just flooded his replies with like 10 times I he it. used it in his books. Because of course he doesn't remember. Reply, it. Like, guys. <laughs> well, he's written oh. so much. Of course he's broken the rules a bunch of times. And here he owns it when it comes to adverbs. But but it is fun. And I actually, I will say out of all the toolbox stuff, this was something that, and this was drilled into my head in middle school, probably because I used to always say things like, he gushed or he you know exclaimed and i always say shit like that i know he would always and now yeah and so i I would always do stuff like that when i was in middle school and i was right and my teacher was like you don't need to do that like it's simpler just to say you know he said and i remember thinking that i did that but i remember thinking i'm like but isn't that boring and then when i read this book i was like oh wow mrs fernes was right and so uh i very much have that's like the one I think out of all these toolbox things that's really been drilled into my head. And um, I love this little quote he has on page 128, where this is sort of related to adverbs, but it also speaks, I think, to what you're saying, Mike, which is, um, you know, follow the rules, uh, lean towards the rules, but, you know, don't be afraid to break them. And i yeah. uh, And I just love this little quote, which is good writing is often about letting go of fear and affectation. Affectation itself, beginning with the need to define some sorts of writing as quote unquote good and other sorts as quote unquote bad, is fearful behavior. Good writing is also about making good choices when it comes to picking the tools you plan to work with. Um, I remember... I was working on a play once and one of my actors was like, you know, you end a lot of your sentences with like prepositions or whatever. Like, he started saying shit like that to me and I was like, I was like, because that's how people talk, dude. You know?
1: That, that, the preposition thing always reminds me in like Beavis about Do America. Yes, I always think of it. <laughs> there's, the, there's the FBI agent played by Robert Stack. And he's talking. Camper, his they whacker. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he, and he's like, "Hey, he's like, hey, you know the 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 shed the shed where those kids are whacking off in." And he's like, "You're an FBI agent. Never end a sentence in a preposition." And he's like, "Oh, you know the shed in which they were whacking or whatever." And it's like, <laughs> but is that Greg Kinnear.
2: The I think that's Greg Kinnear I think is the aide, and then it's Robert Stack is the main guy. Oh, it's I so think. funny. I'm pretty it's so, sure
1: it's so true too. And I, I will say I. I mean, am I my day job right now? I'm an editor, so like I do have to look out for grammar and all that stuff. Uh, and I do think of the preposition thing, e- even when it's fine. Like I don't think we're writing about mattresses and everything. I don't think anyone's gonna care. And also, I think it, as long as the sentence makes sense, but it is funny the preposition thing and even the adverb thing. Sometimes I don't know if it's because of this book, like, are drilled in my head, even though I know it's there's no reason to be so strict about it. Um, and like you said too, I mean, King. On one hand, shot himself in the foot with the adverb thing, but also I think it's kind of a baller move because, like, I, I reading uh Gwendy's final task, I spot a bunch of adverbs, and I was like, oh, oh, Stephen or oh, Richard. you know, those De- were all
0: Richards. You know, <laughs> yeah, probably. he's gonna
1: blame it on him. No, but, oh, uh, but those, that, those weren't me, I swear. But then I was like, I'm like, all right, calm the fuck down, Dan. Like you use adverbs all the time too. So <laughs> Yeah, it, I, I I like I will say I like the tone of the toolbox set, section, even if it's the probably the part of the book I gravitate to the least like I I like how King I don't think it has all these amazing lessons in it like the other sections do but I do I like the kind of humor and sobriety he attacks it with um that he's not being too much of a a Mussolini or (laughs) whatever he called it (laughs) sure
0: yeah I uh and you know I think it is interesting because I think some of these concepts, he seems to be very irreverent when it comes to these concepts to a degree as well, because he's very much like, yeah, like uh, right sentence fragments. That's fine. You know, that's how people talk. That's how people that's how, you know, stories can be more propulsive if you do it that way. And I feel like since the rise of social media, like a lot of types of writing that used to be more formal have become less formal because people are trying to embrace a more natural cadence when they write, be it ad copy, technical copy, a lot of this kind of stuff. Like you'll read, uh, and you know, I mean, part of this is, is very, uh, dire. Cause you read like, you know, stupid fucking brands being like, mm-hmm. uh, what up chief, you know? And it's, it's like, shut <laughs> up, just sell me a burger. I don't want you to talk what to me up, like you're chief? a person. <laughs> what up chief? Um, So but yeah, but I do think it's interesting that I feel like these sort of formal writing concepts are have even fallen out of favor to some degree in more professional types of writing, as I think a lot of brands are trying to chase a more natural and uh, approachable voice. I mean, obviously, there's always going to be a place for it. But um, but just an observation I had. Any other thoughts on uh, the toolbox here? before we go into the I, I think the section I, king was much more excited about which was uh, on writing.
1: I just want to give a shout out to his uncle Oren. Uh, he just talks about him a lot and he talks about uncle Oren having a little literal toolbox and uh no one else remembers uncle Oren? I don't know. He he brings about Oh, I remember. That was a great
3: that was a good story about bringing the whole toolbox instead of just yeah. the He's, one. He, he feels like a king whatever.
1: character, one of those salty yeah. main locals who have. Come but the to funny no thing love.
0: is, though, he sets up that whole story, and he has this whole little toolbox image that he creates, but he really doesn't commit to it. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Like no. he, this whole concept of like, oh, you have different levels of your toolbox vocabulary, and all of a sudden, but then he's just kind of like, yeah, but you can throw most of that out. <laughs> he's also like steven what do you mean by vocabulary and he's like i don't know the words
3: uh, that you words
1: use. i'm like after yula bula i'm surprised it didn't end with you know and anyway uncle Orin took the pipe wrench and beat me senseless with it it was we had a good we had a good laugh about it uh later on over several beers when i shouldn't have been drinking <laughs> i was just i was waiting for him just to become more unsavory like every other adult that king talks about in this book but he, he's a good guy uncle Orin. Who do you think is it. better,
2: though? Do you think it's do you think Uncle Orin or Uncle Otto? Um, you know, because <laughs> <Uncle> oh <Otto's trucking. laughs> Uncle Otto just kind of litters outside of town, whereas Orin kind of seems like he cleans things up with the toolbox. So yeah, and it gives King um, a good metaphor to semi use. Yeah. So yeah, Uncle
1: bad. Uncle Orin greater than sign Uncle Otto.
0: Okay, <laughs> any other thoughts here on the toolbox, or should we close it up and uh, roll up our sleeves and start writing? Uh-oh. Uh, what, what was that? I was doing like <laughs> home, home improvement.
2: Okay, yeah, home improvement toolbox. Okay, Tim right, the yeah. Toolman Taylor. Like that was what
0: I thought you were doing, but then I, I, so that's why I did Isn't it. Is there a character in the Crow whose name is Toolbox?
1: Oh, there's actually, Tintin Are you think of t- there's yeah. Tintin, yeah. Skank, top okay. dollar. Oh, wow. T-bird, okay. T-Bird so, right and uh, fun, opened, fun Boy.
3: Opened the, the crow uh, box. With Dan, I've got, I've got a lot all of the cro- I
1: got my crow bar and I'm going to open up, crack open J.O. Bar's graphic novel and talk about oh, the that, crow. It's a good good
2: graphic novel and it's, and it's really happy and you always oh, feel usable. really good after reading it. <laughs> oh God, it's um, great. But it's, so, it's like, you just feel literal misery
1: Losing off the page I mean, I,
0: but you also get the elements of style which really pop on the page Ooh! so on that note i'm going to read the opening of the on writing section of this page 141 i think this is almost uh to some degree i think it's him again grappling with the idea of Can you teach somebody to write good? There are no bad dogs, according to the title of a popular training manual. But don't tell that to the parent of a child mauled by a pit bull or a Rottweiler. Hey, you own a pit bull, Dan.
1: Yeah, I don't like this pit bull hate. They get enough hate. And I I will not have it, and neither will Hank.
0: Uh, Well, King says he or she is apt to bust your beak for you. Well, I'd like to see what Hank does to him after he busts your beak.
1: Um, it's hard to tell yeah. when you <laughs>
0: stop reading <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. everyone's like okay, wow King's now i'm here. not gonna stop reading again i'm gonna <laughs> I'm sorry talking. i keep interrupting too i'm sorry good
0: no dan king was talking about dan's dog hey, in the actual yes. text though so. uh and no matter how much I want to encourage the man or woman trying for the first time to write seriously, I can't lie and say there are no bad writers. Sorry, but there are lots of bad writers. Some are on staff at your local newspaper, usually reviewing little theater productions. Ah, uh, so, there it is. That's so
1: condescending. <laughs> th- that's what I'm talking about. The theater, he always comes back to that. and he. I feel like he also conflates crappy community theater with crappy art house theater and then just applies it to all theater in general. It really bugs me every single time. There is a shitty community. I know I said I
0: wasn't going to stop, but. That no, no, no. Stop. I'm glad you
1: did because we talked about that last time. So yeah. That's
0: funny. Okay. Usually reviewing little theater productions or pontificating about the local sports teams. Some have scribbled their way to homes in the Caribbean, leaving a trail of pulsing adverbs, wooden characters, and vile, passive voice constructions behind them. Others hold forth at open mic poetry slams, <laughs> wearing black turtlenecks <laughs> and wrinkled khaki pants. They spout doggerel about, quote, unquote, my angry lesbian breasts and, quote, the tilted alley where I cried my mother name. I kind of like the last one me too <laughs> oh I also I forgot to mention in the toolkit this relates though he he gets really mad about he says writers should never use the phrase that's cool or something like do you guys remember when he says that
1: yeah, yeah. didn't he say he was like in a throttle. And he wants to throttle yeah, anyone who says throttle that.
0: Throttle anyone who uses the phrase. That's so. Cool I say that's writing. cool
1: all the time. I we know should now. Just use he's, it.
0: Now he's he's got like now he's got like in the institute. He's got the kids being like, "That's lit, bro." Hey, um, Rihanna,
2: cute. did you get that new album? Yeah. Um, <laughs> You we what we should try, probably try to do is like every time we tweet something um you know about <laughs> politics we just reply back to him like that's so cool. Or cool. you know, that's cool <laughs> thank thank you, Steven. Very cool.
0: <laughs> oh man. Oh, okay. Gosh. So uh so yeah, I think it's I think it's a good um it's, it's I think that section is interesting because it speaks to, I think, how how personal King takes a lot of writing and how there are types of writing that it doesn't matter, matter whether it's good or bad. This is where I think that there are just types of writing that King is biased against, which has to do, I think, with art that comes across as pretentious, which is why he's bringing up. Poetry slams and stuff like that because I feel like when he was young and in college, that was what the arty farty kids who didn't care about story were doing. And um and I think he comes back to those themes a lot throughout the book. And I can't help but feel a little tinge of um of uh of saltiness uh, there. And I think that's him kind of coming out the gate saying like, "I'm teaching you how to tell stories and write in that vein. If you want to do weird experimental shit, this is not the place for
2: you." Yeah, yeah. So I want I ask think breasts whole...
3: can be lesbian. I mean,
2: that is true. What an interesting. um, Yeah, that's Uh, a little
0: I kind of cringe at that bit. (laughs) Yeah. But then he goes on to say this and he's he sort of has a he lays out sort of a thesis here. And I I think I might have read this earlier, but I'm going to in the last episode, but I'm going to reread it now because I think it's, it's short and it's important. I am approaching the heart of this book with two theses, both simple. The first is that good writing consists of mastering the fundamentals, vocabulary, grammar, the elements of style, and then filling the third level of your toolbox with the right instruments. The second is that while it is impossible to make a competent writer out of a bad writer, and while it is equally impossible to make a great writer out of a good one, it is possible with lots of hard work, dedication, and timely help to make a good writer out of a merely competent one. And then he goes on to slam critics for a while. <laughs> so. There's
2: there's one line that kind of builds on that. And I think yeah. it's an interesting question that I've been really interested to hear what everyone's takes is, is uh, later on. He's like, before we go on, let me repeat my basic premise. If you're a bad writer, no one can help you become a good one or even a competent one. If you're a good one and want to be great, and this is where he kind of references one of Caffrey's favorite shows. He says, "For good about it, like you know, he's Tony Soprano or something." But um, <laughs> Kingy you Soprano, know, Stevie Soprano. But do we agree with that sentiment? Because I I'm interested to hear everyone's takes on that. First of all, do we
3: think like, he considers himself a great writer?
2: I think I think he, he does. I think, think he's the proof is the does. pudding I, type of thing. Here and like, here's
1: why because he's I know he's always ragging on himself about. Oh my! I'm the literary equivalent to Big Mac and Cheese, but he also has such a stick up his ass about critics. He always has that. That leads me to believe that he secretly thinks he's awesome, and he would be right because I think he is a great writer. Um, but it, it, I don't know his. I don't want to say he has false humility because I do think, as far as you know, best selling authors go, he's very modest and and seems like a good dude. But there's. The the whole the the constant like, well, if I made any mistakes, it's my fault and blah blah blah, this or that. I just don't I don't know if I buy it all the time because he, he gets so rankled by by critics and there are some great I mean, yeah, there are shitty critics out there, of course, but there's some amazing book critics too. And um and I feel like when you do that you think your work is beyond reproach a little bit. So I think he secretly thinks he's he's a great writer. That-
3: that section used to really
1: appeal to me. Like the
3: first time I read the book, I was like, yeah, Steve, like you, you got it. You nailed it. Bad writers can't be competent. and Like good writers can't be great. Now, I think my opinion is the most important prerequisite for becoming a very good slash great writer is writing a lot when your brain is developing, like just being a writer yeah. for for the period of time when you are shaping your brain, like doing a lot when you're young, like I can remember yeah. being a bad writer. I, I have proof of being a bad writer and it's because I was on these fucking online role-playing sites every day <laughs> that I am now, I would say a competent to good.
1: <laughs> writer. Well, I, I do think, and and I, I agree, but I do think part of that has, to, yeah, you write a lot while your brain's developing, but I also I, and th- I think this maybe is a, the mark of a, at least a competent or a good writer. I think you have to be willing to take criticism and go there and do the work, like he's saying, because I, I remember a lot of students, not a lot, but like a handful of students in when I was an undergrad and and taking, you know, fiction workshops or whatever, that would get that were weren't bad necessarily. Like you could see the kernels of talent there and you could see what they were going for, but they would get so pissy. Whenever revisions came into play or they got a little bit chewed out by the teacher and you would always see this kind of dividing line then like of the students who, okay, they're just like not going to go along with this. And like, I remember I talked to this one guy, I think his name was Eric or something. And I remember after. Oh, cl- yeah, yeah, Eric. Yeah, yo, yo, Eric. Shitty Eric. No, um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but I remember after class one day, this, it's just like an undergraduate fiction one workshop. We had to write a story that was um I don't remember what the assignment was, but there were some rules set out. Like, okay, it can't start with someone waking up. It can't end with having been a dream. It, you know, some typical, like, trying to get us to avoid cliches. And he thought it was going to be clever to write a story that broke all those rules. And the teacher just, like, called him out. And he's like, oh, come on, I've seen a million students do this. And, yeah, don't do this again. This sucks, blah, 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 And, like I said, this I didn't think this guy was a bad writer, but he was so turned off by that. And I remember he even said, Oh well, you know, Professor Foster, he can he can uh be proud of himself for discouraging me from ever wanting to write again. And then I'm like, okay, well, yeah, if that's how you get from that the those very justified comments, then yeah, I, I don't think you have a chance of being a good writer, if that makes sense. Yeah, Mike. Here's
2: I, I think it's entwined with something that we were discussing last week, which was the the you know, the idea of the ideas, like you're finding ideas, you know? And, you know, my argument last week was just, that I think that those that are able to come up with those and drum them up, I think that's the big magic of being a writer and just having worked with, with writers over the last decade. The one thing I will say is that observation and I, I think is so key. Mm-hmm. And, and Mel, you mentioned point of view. And I think that that's, Intrinsic to like writing, I think it's so. I, I just think that if with if you don't focus or prioritize point of view sometimes, and just also just what those observations you're making, I think those are are really key tenets of writing that are that are really hard to develop. Yeah. Um, and that's what I've I've learned with working with writers before, where I've I've had writers that'll bring in me, you know, bringing me bring me uh, clean copy, and yet they'll say nothing. I'll be like, well, there's nothing here. Like, why didn't you, well, what, what happened, you know, what happened in the middle of the show or what happened before Where where are the quotes here? Like, what are the observations that you're bringing to the table? And, and I've had conversations where I've tried to explain that to them and, you know, getting on the phone or going through email and it's just deer in the headlights. Like they just don't get it. And for me, like, if you don't have, it's, if you don't have that engine you know, to be able to do that, like it's, I don't know that, that that's a really hard thing to train. Whereas if you do have that and maybe your copy isn't great, I think that you have a better chance of being a greater writer, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of those things that you do need to learn, like the style and yeah, like you can't the, teach the voice, perspective, you can do it. it. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Like, well, and I, yeah. I, I don't think you can keep, maybe, maybe you can,
1: I don't know. The thing I was going to say is I don't think you can teach flexibility either. Like if someone's, mm-hmm. if someone's digging in their heels, either about not taking critiques or just being like, no, I... Like I, used to, I, I feel like when uh, we were all doing um, pop culture writing, a lot of a, th- a lot of what I would hear from publications, um, and I wasn't doing this thank God, but they would be like, "Look, just pitching an interview with a band is not enough. Like, I, exactly. I need to know, wh- okay, what's what's the angle? Okay, oh well, I'll talk about their new album. Okay, great, but like, what? How is it <laughs> tied to the context of their career? What does it have to say? How is your your article going to be different from everyone else's? And it's funny because Stephen King, a lot in this section, bristles at theme a little bit. And I would argue that he does have a lot to say with his books, and he says that he, as he's after the fact, he can look back and say, "Oh yeah, Salem's Lot is about small town rot as seen through through the lens of vampirism, whatever." Right? Um, but it's funny that he, I, I think he does bristle at themes sometimes. But I'm like, I, I think you, I think you at least have a grasp, whether you know it or not, on what you're trying to say from the beginning. I mean, you kind of have to if you're as prolific as as he is.
2: I guess I, I just feel like, I'm... oh, sorry.
3: Go there for. are exceptions to both of your points here like i think there are undergrads that i have known that have been like i'm not taking any of this feedback and they can like <laughs> go off and but like they might because of their like stubbornness and their commitment to their craft and they're like wanting to be different it, like if they kept at it for years and years like yeah they might produce something that like nobody's ever seen well, that's before.
0: that's paul thomas anderson he dropped out of school
3: sure and then yeah. I think perspective, um, can be built with age. Like it just, just gaining a sort of worldliness for sure. Um, it can be, it can be something that you can try to train yourself to do. I guess I feel that it would be the most difficult to like take someone who was in middle age, had perspective, was flexible, but just had like kind of none of the writing instincts that are maybe even a little more technical I feel like they're worse. Like, I don't think they could really learn.
0: Well, like- oh, I agree with that. I think I think I like what you said, Mal. about you have to write a lot when your brain is still developing. I think once your brain sort of, you know, settles into that hard, stony lump that, you know, comes <laughs> with age. Where, yeah, that we all have where it's like can't teach the old dog new tricks. I think you're I think that's when the bad writer is forever the bad writer. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean. It's, it's hilarious to read shit I wrote when I was young, and I obviously got better. But I think the hard thing is, is King is talking about teaching people. And I think... Um I think teaching can only go so far. I think the only way to become a better writer is to keep writing and to keep reading. Like he he hammers that home so much is you have to read a lot to become yeah. a good writer, and that to me is the number one fucking I, I, truth I miss, that comes out of this.
1: I'm gonna sound like such a, a like highfalutin asshole right now, but on, on every syllabus I have for my students, for and this is for playwriting, I I, I start with that quote. I said, "Was it writers read a lot?" Or and write a lot or whatever it is but it's whatever
0: the exact quote whatever my goddamn. Whatever it uh, is.
1: Uh, yeah i have I, I write that and then i write where some shit uh stephen king and they spell <laughs> his about name. it and they spell his name with a v instead of a ph no but 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 it is true i mean i do think it's such simple advice but i do think i do think it's the truest advice because if and if you do have the passion for it and the willingness to do some of the things we're talking about i think you will read and write a lot here's a question for you guys because i consider all of you great writers I know you were saying okay yeah I'll, I'll read stuff back from way back when I'll cringe that being said do you ever find something from when you were younger and you're like oh shit that's pretty good for how young I was so Like, le- le- and time. maybe that leans all in a little bit to the all raw the talent yeah, man. <laughs> yeah my old you don't blogs wait. <laughs> wait yes or no for real yes
0: yes 100%
3: yeah.
1: yes. my old
0: fucking MySpace blogs were I always say were some of the best writing I ever did and then they all got fucking deleted and I was really mad about it it's because the critics man
1: <laughs> the I critics know, did it. They took it off. The critics no, did real, it. Like
0: they were trying to, cr- they were trying to crush, like you know, crush my dreams and get rid of all my
1: good <laughs> work. Right. And they, are out to think, get me. I'm, I'm fond think, saying. Sorry, go ahead, Dan. Well, I was gonna say because I do think if you have raw talent, yeah, hopefully you're cranking out better stuff as you get older and you know how to harness it and you have wisdom and all that. But if you have raw talent and you're in that kind of unadulterated stage where maybe you haven't gone through the meat grinder of an editorial cycle or a workshop or whatever else yet. I, I think it's only inevitable that there are going to be glimmers of oh whoa what's this like? We are writing purely from your subconscious and not thinking about anything else, wh- which sometimes can be hard to replicate when you're older. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because and I, I think that's also a mark of a, either a good or a great writer who can be who can be go to that next level is like yeah I don't think everything from when from when we were younger is going to suck. I think there are going to be those moments where like damn that, like, I was 22 when I wrote that that's pretty fucking good.
3: I'm fond yeah. of saying that being a writer means committing to a certain amount of really frightening mental instability because of how (laughs) drastically you shift your judgment of your own work from day-to-day reading to reading. Like you just have absolutely no reliable barometer of quality until you have let things sit for a long time. And even then you're a changed person. So like who the fuck knows if it's good or bad, like, and you just don't share reality with, versions of yourself or anyone else and it's, it's just so destabilizing you're just constantly trying to balance and feeling like something is really bad then coming back and feeling like it's good and who can live like that why do we do this
0: yeah i know what you mean and i think what we're all sort of just trying to get at though is that their writing isn't just being good or bad right like there are so many different elements to it that some people possess and others don't um like And it's, I I was talking before we got on the call about acting to some degree and how I'm not a big proponent of like, wow, that guy's such a well-trained actor because a lot of my favorite performances are just either people playing themselves in a movie or like non-actors who step into a role that's just like uniquely suited to their personality those tend to be my favorite performances and i think there's some element that's true of that in writing as well what is it that you're bringing personally to something even if you can't write a beautiful sentence sometimes you can bring a perspective or tell a story like mike you were talking about the idea like having an idea um I think a lot of people have ideas for great stories who aren't great writers, you know what I mean? And then, they're, then they can perhaps work with someone who can write a beautiful sentence, and together they can form something really great. And I, so I think for me, it's um, – there are. but you were getting at this too, Dan, which is that there are certain things that can't be taught, and there are certain things that can. Mel, you sort of uh, rebutted that a little bit, but I think I mostly disagree with you.
3: That's my
2: oh,
0: thought, Mel. Shit. So – Uh,
3: but any other, I'm unclear about what you
0: disagree on, but you are, are allowed to disagree. (laughs) We'll talk more about it later. Okay. Let's move on and talk about, uh, I actually, I think the best way to approach this section specifically, since it's a bit longer and it kind of goes all over the place about theme and about character and about, uh, revisions and all this other stuff. I guess I just want to ask to you, what, what parts of this chapter were helpful and what parts weren't? Um, I will start just to kind of set the tone here. Um, he talks pretty early in this about the idea of the muse and um, mm-hmm. the idea. And we talked about this a little bit last week about the idea of waiting for an idea. I love the way he phrases this, though. Um, and this actually echoes some of the stuff he says in Bag of Bones about writing, which was probably my favorite part of Bag of Bones, which is the, the way he writes about writing and that. But uh, he says, there is a muse, but he's not going to come fluttering down into your writing room and scatter creative fairy dust all over your typewriter or computer station. He lives in the ground. He's a basement guy. You have to descend to his level, and once you get down there, you have to furnish an apartment for, for him to live in. You have to do all the grunt labor, in other words, while the muse sits and smokes cigars and admires his bowling trophies and pretends to ignore you. Do you think this is fair? I think it's fair. He may not be much to look at, that muse guy, and he may not be much of a conversationalist, but he's got the inspiration. It's right that you should do all the work and burn all the midnight oil because the guy with the cigar and the little wings has got a bag of magic. There's stuff in there that can change your life. So I guess I just love that notion of of uh, the inspiration comes by immersing yourself in the work. You can't wait for the inspiration to create the you know bed of feathers or whatever that is uh that creates uh the story for you. You have to like start pushing through the swamp to get to the clearing. I think that's something that I found very true in writing and um and I remember that resonating with me when I was young and I think it helped instill in me a certain work ethic that I think has benefited me as a writer. Um you guys can elaborate on the muse or is there another part of this section that you think uh Uh, speaks to you or you find helpful personally. Mel? There's this Elizabeth Gilbert
3: TED talk that a lot of people really love. And some of those people I respect. So if you're one of those people, don't think I don't respect you, but I hate the TED talk so much. And in it, she talks about how the idea of genius or even the word genius comes from a word that means like a spirit that, that kind of like lives in a room of your house or does descend on you. And like, it's something that passes through you. It's something independent from you. It lives outside of you. It visits you. You you can't control when it comes. You just have to kind of wait. And then this external force might at some point choose to inhabit you and, and flow through you. So yeah, like you, Randall, I, I really like how King kind of nests the unknowable part of inspiration in the basement of the brain like to me I do think he is saying it's not external from you it's the basement is within you it's it's part of you the muse is part of you um I really really don't I get really grumpy about people that embrace the sort of mysticism of inspiration (laughs) and muse and genius being something that is completely spiritually independent one of the people that Elizabeth Gilbert references in this TED talk is like a poet who says that she hears a poem coming at her, like from over the nearest hill, and has to like race to the place where it's going to be so that she can catch it by the tail and maybe get some of it down. And look, again, Damn. if that's how you feel, do not let me delegitimize that. Just do your
0: writing. <laughs> uh, but I think that's fucking stupid. It I'm sounds sorry. like whore, <laughs> it's too
2: that's precious. a monkey pissing that's- in its
0: own mouth. Uh, yeah, I agree. I get. I get, un- I get unnaturally mad about people who try to turn writing into some spiritual act. But I think that when I was younger, I did that too. Um, and then you actually learn what real hard deadline driven writing yes. is. And it's not that. It, I, I
2: and I think, that's think we can all relate to that,
0: Mike. It. I think that's what you're going to say is because we're, we all know what deadline driven writing is like, right? You know,
2: go ahead. Yeah. And I think that shatters a lot of the sort of, you know, the, the preconceptions you have of writing. Like, I remember, I remember the first thing we did in, in uh, one of my English classes in, in undergrad uh, was the teacher came in and did exactly what Mel has just said, uh, was like, you know, what is your inspiration for writing? Like, what, Or no, actually the exercise was, uh, I wanted to write an essay about like, what you do to kind of get in the mood for writing. And I was like-
3: <laughs> You light like, some candles. I, I, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That was the
2: first image that everyone had. Yeah. And I just didn't have anything. Like, I didn't know what to say. I was like, I- I was like i don't know i i um i get a cup of coffee or something like that or I, it was so boring and and i've thought about and i balked at it i balked at it so much and i was just like um i was like well i don't have a routine I, I just you know if i have to do something i go and do it or if i have an idea i'll go sit down and do it but the truth behind that is is that there is a routine like i you know even as much as as much as, like, I, you know, Randall, you just talked about the deadline thing. Like, even in the midst of those deadlines, when I have to go in and I have to punch in something out, there were little things that I would do that I just didn't even know about. It's kind of like what I was saying before, it became routine. So it just wasn't part of my mind, like, when I thought about it. But one habit that I had was that, like, whatever I'm writing about, I have to have some sort of like, like, oratory sense, sensation with it. You know, like, if I'm writing out, like, it's so stupid, though. But, like, if I was writing about, like, you know, like, uh, a Stephen King news or something like that, I would go and put on, like, I don't know, the Stan score or something like that or the Dead Zone score or something like that. Or if I had some, you know, if I was writing any features that that tied to things that that I could have some sort of audio component that can tie to it, it was just subconsciously I would do it. And, and it's just, it's one of the reasons why my Spotify, uh, Unwrapped just has like all these wacko fucking <laughs> soundtracks and stuff that, that, that come into play. But I don't know where I was going on that, but I, I do think that like, when it, when it comes into the preciousness of writing, I do still have that sort of callous bite towards it where I'm just like, no, just stop overthinking it. Just maybe just sit down and fucking do it. Like, like yeah, you're but you're still, be and you're still
3: admitting that environment can be important and you'll discover the ways in which you can cultivate an environment that is conducive to your creativity, like those can be real. And then also if you can't have them
1: like do the work anyway, exactly. And I think hundred percent. And I think too, that's what, I mean, that that's the, I've said this last week, the part, I think my, my absolute most favorite part of the book that I think is the most effective is what you just said, Mel, because King's big on that too, about when he talks about his desk later on and everything, and just this idea of having a life outside of writing. Um, it's funny because I, you know, I'm I'm very extroverted. I like hanging out, and I've realized like, no, I'm actually my routine. is <laughs> – I like is,
0: hanging
3: out. I do. I love. <laughs> hey,
1: not everybody does, man. No, I know. No, no it's and, just and, a great. I love you, Dan. Oh, thank you. I love you too. It's and, funny you had that and,
2: stoop outside your house. So you can always hang out with the, <laughs> no, the bunch for, of the neighborhood <laughs> riffraff.
1: It's it's funny because like I I think there's this, and, and I know a lot of writers are like this. Okay, I'm gonna go in a cab. I'm gonna do it Mike Noonan style and go in the cabin for however many weeks and have fuck dreams and write and everything. Yes. But, Ripple but, fuck
3: but, handjob dream.
1: But uh, yeah, do, do me, just do me, you bitch. Sorry, that's just so funny <laughs> too. But I, I, I like to I, hang I, out. I, I do understand it's a solitary act for a lot of people. And, yeah, of course, there are times when I, when I write alone, but I'm also at my healthiest just as a person and also at my most productive as a writer when I'm balancing it out with going to the movies with people and going mm. to concerts and seeing folks and even – I don't know, something I like doing at writers' retreats or whatever is like writing in the same room with someone else at the same the the same table. And I know that's not for everyone, but for me yeah, I don't like that one. That's <laughs> you know, I don't, I I don't like, I will not like that. And and you know, and I, I should Get say I have, t- I have to temper it sometimes <laughs> Get because out of here. It, it can be it can be more fun to oh, okay, yeah, let's actually just watch this episode of The Simpsons or whatever instead of getting writing done. Like you have to temper it, but I think when I think about like, oh, like a, a methodology or whatever, and how I build my life around writing. It's not super structured, but it is like, okay, I need a certain amount of this in my life. I need a certain amount of this in my life. I need a certain amount of this in my life. And I think that's what King gets at later on when talking about letting his kids into the room and, and, you know, not obsessing over having this huge ass desk. I know that's like later on in the next section, but uh,
3: I like I do yeah. like the advice to shut the door. That's advice that I need to mm. take more often. Yeah, same. Um, I don't do that enough, and it would help me. And I, he does get a little preachy
0: about TV in that section when he's oh, which is like so a, a funny. Total because, technophobe. Well, yeah, he talks about. Well, I actually will talk. I don't want to interrupt. Okay. Him, but we'll talk about his TV thoughts shortly.
3: Um, I do want to talk about the part that I have the most beef with here. Uh, And we've already sort of touched on it. I'm sure it's going to sound defensive and grumpy and sour grapesy. And I assure you that I know how it sounds, but I don't think that talent always means that you are compelled to do the thing that you are talented at. And I don't think every great writer loves writing so much that they can't help, but do it. And I think that the book does something actually pretty pernicious here implying that writing won't feel like work that if it's your calling you will be called (laughs) to it and you will be not able to resist it and I I understand that it's how he personally feels and I'm very happy for him but this section really fucked with me as a younger writer (laughs) because I thought that if I didn't want to write all the time I didn't have ink in my blood right Mm. and instead I'm his kid with the saxophone that's That's practicing, but not living, you know, I
0: love that story. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just to reiterate, uh, he talks about how Owen, was really into the East Street band, right? And he wanted to play the saxophone. He wanted and... to be like
2: Clarence Clemens, which is hilarious.
0: <laughs> yeah.
3: Just imagine and, um, him, like, like
2: so cosplaying as Clarence Clemens with like, it's you, like you know, brrr, the bandanas a
3: good role model to have.
1: <laughs>
2: no, Cla- I, Look, <laughs> yeah. my favorite, uh,
1: favorite musician. It's just funny for to Sprintzy, think of baby
0: Owen
3: King. It, 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 like I'm that, just picturing
1: yeah. Owen King as an adult with like sunglasses in the fedora and like a big <laughs> vest on, just like wailing on a parent's sax. <laughs> but they're
2: popular too. So like, or like, you know, they're famous at that point. So it's like, who... You know, maybe little Stevie came over and, you know, jammed with them and stuff. But uh, yeah.
0: Uh, but yeah, he basically talks about how Owen, they bought him a saxophone. He was learning, but he was only practicing uh, when he was like kind of in, in his assigned hours of practice. And they took that to mean that he wasn't passionate about it and that he didn't, you know, um, I guess you got to be a famous writer, son. Uh, you know, <laughs> no, no saxophone for you. But uh, so I, I, I like what you're saying, Mel, and I think that's very true. I think like the difference for me is that when I was young, I feel like I did have that. I would write all the fucking time and I was drawn to it. I would write during classes like math class. I'd be in the back row writing my stupid little stories, but that's something that faded once writing became work. You know what I mean? Yes. A hundred percent. So I think that that is, and that's, I talked about that last Mike and I, we both talked about that in our last episode. And I think that's why those feelings surface for us, because I think they trigger something in us too, Mal, which, uh, Which I think I've I've personally doubted myself as a writer because I don't have that same uh, fire in my chest that King does. And I think that that that's almost what makes him not the best person to write a book about writing is because he is super literally supernatural in how he writes. (laughs) Like you can't teach people to do what he does because he writes so much.
3: I do now think it's sort of amusing now to read this it's just kind of funny for how openly opinionated and dismissive it is because he is like such a superhero about it he's like yeah you just you just do this what it's not this easy for all you, you just love it all the time yeah and i but it's just the the prescriptive nature of it i i feel the same about the length thing about a writing every day and b producing like the measurable amount that he proposes which is what like three thousand two thousand three thousand words or something it's insane and I, I know it's not his <laughs> intent but these sections, they, they present a quote, right way to do things. And the, it, there's just like this naive incredulity about those who can't meet his standards, which sound very reasonable to him. And well, it's yeah, well-meaning. And he, say, but and it, he what says it,
0: like uh, all of his rough drafts, he finishes in three months. Oh my God. I, I have just written in all caps, Stephen. Yes. <laughs>
1: like
0: It's well-meaning. I'm but- like, did you really write? insomnia in three months my friend I think he really does I believe it I
1: I I absolutely does he puts out like three novels a year I think he has to I mean I know it's crazy my students
3: my I'd be interested to hear Dan and anyone else who's taught if this has happened to you too but my students some of them have read this or have heard this advice elsewhere Like this has become a sort of canonical text in terms of productivity Mm -hmm. and all it does is engender shame. And it's one of the first things that I touch on in in my writing classes. When I was teaching, I would be like, "How, how you should look at this prescriptive statement and just know, like, it's not intending to do this, but kind of all it does is, is produce shame in you, like kind of ditch anything that you feel that way about, like, you yeah. don't have to write every day. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I, I think it also comes in the fact that like he's never really had writer's block. I mean, he's admitted that. Like, you know, he said like the only time you know there's very it's very rare and in between that he has you know what he considers writer's block. And I, I think I feel like if I sw- could have sworn I've read somewhere he doesn't even believe in it. And I, and I and I think that's also telling in the sense of just you know his application towards writing or like his his commitment or the the endurance of writing for him. Is that like, you know, I feel like so many other writers and, you know, the average writer out there does have writer's block, does get to those points where you can't produce the amount of word counts that he has. Whereas I think like King's advice then would just be like, oh, I just keep going, you know, it'll, it'll come to you and, you know, or maybe go out and re- go, go out for a walk and it'll, it'll come to you. And, you know, there are. Instances, I mean, one of the reasons why I stopped writing short fiction or even long fiction is that you do get in those moments where you are just circling a fucking cul de sac. And it's just like, I, I, at at a long enough timeline, you know, you either say, A, I ditched the book, or B, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. And like to, I agree with you, Mel. Like, I do think that that that, that, that stress of like, fuck, why am I not producing this? It comes into the, I think that does fuel a lot of self deprecation as a writer. Um, if you're not, you know producing that 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 sort of allotment um because that is a, a, a that's a lot of words i mean it, especially if you're doing fiction i mean it's a lot of ideation alone and i don't know it's it, it does seem like a maybe you could have notched it down a couple hurdles i think or you know <laughs> uh, turn the volume down a little bit put on like. some training wheels for us yeah i mean the bit.
3: myopic nature of this book is what i love about it and so mm-hmm. examining it now again i'm kind of like this is great. This is a, this is like, I I I just love that he can't see outside himself. Like the book is very consistent in that regard.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think the counterpoint to make someone, I think this made me feel better when I was in college was I studied James Joyce a lot and James Joyce would say, you know, he would write, five words in a day and be happy with that because mm-hmm. they would be five words in the right order and he thought yeah. they were amazing. I mean, yeah, it took him 10, 12 years to write a book, but they were the greatest books ever written uh, cool. by some uh, measures. So it's...
2: Uh, and his so, comp was, what, yeah. uh, Vonnegut? He talks about how Vonnegut would just sit there and just rewrite over and over again. I mean, yeah, I mean... Yeah, he, until at he, at he would admits, get it perfect the first time, yeah. And he's he's realistic about the the fact that, you know, the differences of writers out there are, are out there, you know? I mean, not everyone is going to you know, run as fast as he does. (laughs) Well, And I think too, because I mean, I look at what you said, Mel about like, he doesn't step outside himself,
1: which I actually think is useful. I think there are these myths out there that, oh, teaching is objective or should be objective. Criticism should be objective. I'm like, no, fuck that. All that stuff is subjective. I I don't, I don't think objectivity exists maybe outside of math, I guess. Um, And I I think it's actually, I think that's why I like this book so much too, is that, okay, yeah, we are getting the Stephen King approach, whether or not that's the exact approach that's going to work for us that's uh that's up to you right but also i think what it does is inspire you to come up with your own ab- approach and your own kind of amalgamation of the techniques he out- outlines but like you said when you're younger though that can be really imposing you're the... literally googling how many words should i write yeah. a day to yes. be a writer <laughs> something i like to, i say to my students because i do want to instill in them uh at least while they're in this class to take writing seriously and i accept that okay yeah they're not all theater majors um Not all of them maybe even want to write. Some of them just probably took this for credit. But, like, while you're here, I want you to take this seriously, just like I think any teacher would with their subject. And also, I think there are ways to instill that in them that don't have to do with word count or pages cranked out a day or even writing every day, to be honest. Like, yeah, of course it's great if you can write every day. But I say this, I I mean – yeah I don't know technically, we all write every day. I think, but it's also easy to go, oh, cool, I wrote for my day job. I wrote today. <laughs> you know, not oh, I worked on my my novel or my my play or my short story. Um, so yeah, I think I think there are healthy work habits to instill in your students that don't have to do with like hitting this this benchmark all the time. Yeah, Mike, what were you gonna say?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of a healthy lesson here, I think the the one biggest takeaway for me in reading this memoir um, is the his, his concept of drafting. And, and just the, the idea that you do need to walk away from it. And that's something that, you know, I got in so many tunnels while writing, just like, okay, I gotta, I gotta keep this going. I gotta keep going. I gotta keep going. And I, I think I've said it on this podcast before, but I thought the biggest, you know, advice that I always give to writers is that you, if you ever get stuck you know, like go to the bathroom or go, you know, go take a shower or go, you know, go get a couple uh, of I don't know, a couple of juice. <laughs> Mike's or something. like, what's a liquid? Um, <laughs> I don't just, yes, <laughs> anything. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't I don't drink enough, I it guess. But juice. I for me, w- what I've always learned at, at at the micro level, this is just at the micro level, when when especially when you're doing dealing with deadline writing, is that if you disconnect and you come back, more often than not, nine times out of ten, and that is a fucking lofty stat, so don't hold me to it. I usually go, Oh yeah. And then you get the kicker or is one of my professors said, usually your, your kicker is in the paragraph beforehand. And I'm like, Oh, okay. That's an interesting one too. Bottom line, the idea of him saying, you know, resist temptation. If you don't, you'll very likely decide you didn't do as well in that passage as you thought. And you'd better retool it in the spot. This is bad. The only thing worse would be for you to decide the passage is even better than you remembered. Why not drop everything and read the whole book over right then? Get back to work on it. Hell, you're ready. You're fucking Shakespeare. You're not, though. You're not ready to go back to the old project until you've gotten so involved. In a new one or reinvolved in your day-to-day life, as Kathy was just mentioning, that you've almost forgotten the unreal re- estate that took up three hours of your every morning or afternoon for a period of three or five or seven months. And I and I love this concept. And that this is something that I'm going to keep revisiting over and over again. You know, like I, I just think it's great. Um and I I don't know, it's it's something that makes total sense when I relate it to that sort of that same sort of idea at the micro level, which is I was always saying, which is the, the, you know, the disconnect disconnecting when you're at a deadline or something like that. So I, I know, love, I love
3: that. that you have, you have to forget the person that wrote that old draft. Yes. And one of my teachers has said that it's actually quite hard to remain the same person while writing a draft of anything, a short story, certainly a novel is like, yeah, forget about it. <laughs> Is <laughs> that the catchphrase of this episode? Yeah. Well, it's in the book like seven times. Um, he, <laughs> he was watching it. The Sopranos. He loves it. And I like I that was. idea that like you you truly are writing from a persona that won't exist in the future. And so in some sense, you can't help but forget that person. You just have to give yourself enough time. And it is so hard. I don't agree. Like, I'm someone who does edit as she goes. Like, I revise drafts as I'm working. Yeah, I do, that, too. That I is what personally works for me.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same, yeah, yeah. I mean, I do feel like uh, a little worm on a big fucking hook sometimes. You know what I mean, uh, Caffrey? Because that's a... Uh, oh, that's a little uh, skank. How do you feel right
1: now? Michael Wincott, and he says, I feel like a little worm on a big fucking hook. A little worm on a big fucking hook.
2: The <laughs> crow. Bring it back to the crow. <laughs> back
1: to
3: the crow.
2: <laughs> I have,
3: okay, I have one more soapbox from this section. Him. bring it um he okay it's about plot and I okay, think I was
0: just gonna bring this up so I'm glad you bring it up
3: yeah so he he talks about stories as fossils and again I'm sort of not I don't have a float in that parade is that an expression uh, this, no. right. I
1: don't have a float in that parade <laughs> I'm gonna use that instead of uh dog in that fight or dog horse in that fight. race it's
3: nicer than this yeah <laughs> dog exactly fight. dog fighting I don't float race, in that parade so. um, well, that's great I mean, stories can be fossils, but they're lodged in the grooves of your brain, not in the earth outside it, right? We've we sort of already talked about that. He decries outlining. He decries plotting. But I think this is one of the biggest delusions the writing industry perpetuates today, the scoffing at the outline, patting yourself at the back on the back because you dig up a fossil and you let it unfold organically. Fine. Even if you do that, if you're someone who just starts from nothing and just goes, goes, goes. You did it, sure, but you know what? Then you outline. Everyone outlines at some stage of the process. Like, are you kidding me? I know multiple novelists who are like, oh no, I don't outline. And then you go to their house and they've got post-it notes just flooding a cork board, arranging characters and scenes because they can't keep them straight. And they don't call it an outline because they did after the first draft was done, but I'm sorry, that's still an outline and you're still plotting. And when you consider the structure of a completed draft, Even in your head, if you don't use the corkboard and the post-its, if you are considering pacing, if you are considering how scenes intersect, if you're considering the whole structure of the fucking book, you're outlining, you're thinking about plot on a grand scale and what will work in terms of broad storytelling, cause and effect, spark and satisfaction. Bitch, you are plotting. And Steven, (laughs) you could do a little (laughs) more of it sometimes.
0: Oh, Let me jump in. I agree with what you're saying a lot. I'm going to read a quote that speaks to what you're saying. Page 170. He says, "Please remember however that there is a huge difference between story and plot. Story is honorable and trustworthy. Plot is shifty and best kept under house arrest."
3: He doesn't define
0: uh, what he thinks what he thinks plot is. Well, I was going to I was right about to say. I underlined that and I was like, "I can't wait for him to elaborate on this." And he doesn't, he doesn't really yeah. elaborate on <laughs> no. it. And that no. drives me crazy because I the thing is I understand what he's saying to a degree. I think that he is saying, right, intuitively, don't sit down and map everything out beforehand. Mm-hmm. Because, and he says that he did that with insomnia and rose matter, and he called those stiff, trying too hard books. Some might disagree. I'm a, I'm an insomnia head, uh, <laughs> proudly proclaimed. But I will. Uh, But I do know what he's saying in the sense that don't allow the outline to um, dictate your process or delay the process of actually writing. I think that that's something that I struggled with when I was younger and I would try to write outlines was I would spend so much time outlining I would never write and then I would get bored with the story or I would move on to something else and – I also, I think you lose a certain amount of spontaneity when you do that. So I think, and he writes about this in Bag of Bones too, and this speaks to the muse as well. The idea that there's boys in the basement, that they're turning the gears, and you're not necessarily aware of everything they're doing, but trust them because they are uh, unconsciously helping you create something. This again is king's myopic nature because i don't think that helps everyone but um it helps me personally because i think that's how i write best is i write intuitively but i will agree with you mel that i would never say i don't outline because i think i write until i start to see you know the shape of the fossil and then that's when i start to you know uh lay out my my uh uh, dr alan grant strings and and um (laughs) little dust dust things and all that and i just uh, have a bone
3: to pick because i think plot is looked at as lesser still in perhaps like academic circles or MFA oh, circles I, 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 and like in my MFA and i can't was, believe that he's sort of was. doing it here like he just he just sort of is not okay with planning, but like ever. (laughs) And it's like, but I guess when you planned a lot, when
0: we're talking about story versus plot, he's, he describes them as stories on a roll plot is not, but then he doesn't elaborate. Can you, what do you think he's saying with that? You say that this is a larger trend in the literary world.
1: So in, in when I was in grad school, one of my professors had, um, had a class specifically on story. Then he had a master class on plot. And I liked how I'm probably butchering it a little bit, but, I think story is maybe more of the overall gist of, of a of a novel or a play or screenplay or whatever. Like Salem's Lot, right? Okay, the story is uh, Ben Mears coming home. To write and wrestle with demons, young coverage. Hey, no spoilers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. But no, I, th- I think it's more of the overarching, maybe close, more closely tied to theme. And I think plotting would be the exact schematics of that. So it would be the outline, the breaking down of every single thing. That's how I come to understand it. I don't know if that's correct or what he means by it. But when I think when I think of plotting, I do think of the post it notes and the outlines and all that story. I guess I think more of a summary or like an elevator pitch or, or like I said, maybe what you're trying to say with it. But like I said, it could be wrong. Ah.
0: Yeah, I guess for me, I the way I read it is story is intuitive and spontaneous and yes. something that emerges, whereas plot is something that is meticulously planned out. And what I think is mm-hmm. funny, and this is this relates to the TV conversation uh, that we'll have later, which is that uh, what what are the books that he loves uh, saying he you know that are his, his pleasures these days? It's stuff like the Bosch books, you know, Bot which I'm not heavy saying book. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> yeah. saying they're bad. I love a lot of those books, but those are boilerplate template books you know Well, what think I mean? of it it's like they're like goosebumps books but for you know uh, <laughs> for 45 for year old guys Here, like. it,
1: th- think of it this way so he always, and this is how Divorced many we know deaths. he de- he he does outline it, at least mel's definition of it so he always talks about the stand right now yes the story of the stand seemed to be one of those fossils that came out of him That okay i'm gonna do my version of lord of the rings um but it's gonna be a pandemic and instead of mordor it's going to vegas instead of a hobbit it's sea et cetera, etc cetera. Um, but he always talks about how he got stuck on the stand when they got to uh, uh, the Boulder Free Zone because everything became too harmonious and there wasn't conflict happening. And too the way he, and he... What did you say? Oh, yeah, many too meetings. many meetings for sure. And and he talked about trying to write a bunch of different ways out of that. None of them were working. And then the thing that got him out of that was the bomb in the house was Harold and Nadine planning that bomb and killing, you know, half of the main cast in Boulder. Spoilers. Now that's plotting right there. That is plotting. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it had, it is plotting. That is plotting. We've done like
0: 8,000 episodes on the stand. It was on. a joke. People define <laughs> it
3: as something like people are like, oh, plot kills the lightning bolt that surprises you—it like kills the inspiration. Like, what plot is sequential events? You're just doing planning later. Like, you don't have to think, kill the lightning bolt. You can have both. If you think plot think is planning, you cannot prove to me that you never planned anything at any point in writing your draft. Uh,
2: see, I don't, I don't, I don't think he's saying not to plan. I, I think he ultimately means, because I, 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 I kind of to, to play devil's advocate. Hashtag Keanu Reeves, uh, Al Pacino. <laughs> Jeffrey Jones, oh, if uh, you want to Jeffrey mention him? Um, a movie I want anyway. to go
3: back to grad school to examine how <laughs> love, it got made. Devil's let's do it. Why it's two yeah. and a half so hours long,
2: and why my dad took me and my uh, I think my seven year old brother at the time. <laughs> wow. But uh, anyway, look, let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about this for a second because I um, <laughs> got offhand with the devil's advocate and, and Randall's literally cackling now. But I just love anyway.
0: Mention Jeffrey Jones of all the cast members. I know, I know, it's probably I'm sorry, keep but, going. Um,
2: sorry. <laughs> you know um so god where was i oh basically i think the argument that i would say for him is that i i think outline could be limiting because ultimately i think the point he's trying to argue and i think we already know anyway is that like the the journey in his own process at least you know him speaking personally is that like when you're sitting there with the blank page and you're going from next one to next one if you know that you have to get to y so that you can get to z i think his argument is that if you have it too detailed or too outlined enough, you might you might distract from the alternate letters. There, th- th- you know, a different why, or maybe yeah, you that. know a more exciting why. And totally. I think that, speaking personally, I know that's happened to me before. Like. Um, <laughs> This is so fucking pathetic, but Caffrey will respect me for this. In the the late nineties, um, or no, actually two thousand one, um, before uh, you know the big event of that year, I um, I was writing a book for you mean the Space uh, Odyssey. The Space Odyssey, yes. <laughs> um, I was writing a, a Jurassic Park novel, um, or I was trying to, and I was trying to do something in that vein. Like how, like, how,
0: like how Elaine was writing a Murphy Brown on Science. Yes. Button. Something like that. It was, a, it was an <laughs> exercise script. for me at the yeah, time. Spec
2: novel. And, but no, this is supposed to be a novel because I was like, well, Crichton's not going to write a third one, so I'll write a third one. And so I had this whole idea for Jurassic Park 3. This is before the, thir- the third one came out. And I had everything down to a detail. Down to like, like where the characters are going to go, what things they're going to have, like all the different references to the movies and the books and stuff like that. It had a storybook, basically. And I got so exhausted by following this fucking thing that I had that I was just like, uh, like I, I was just like I would look ahead and be like, oh, I still have all this to do. That it, I became disenfranchised to it. Now, my stupid anecdote about me writing fan fiction about Jurassic Park should have absolutely no bearing on the actual g- generality of what he's trying to say here. But anecdotally, that's the only thing I could bring to the table that that, that relates to this. So I apologize. I'm I'm fine with that. uh, Like,
3: yeah, some people don't outline at the outset. That's fine. I don't either. I don't outline at the outset. I'm just saying I don't like, maybe it's totally a semantics argument, right? Like maybe Stephen King would like 100% agree with me. I just think that when you write organically, quote unquote, you just like do the whole novel and it's like there and you did it, you never outlined. You then have to read it and think a lot about plot and do a lot of plotting and do a lot yeah. of outlining whether or not it's in your head because you have scenes y and z oh but they're not coming together quite right you got to do some plotting to like do the revisions and and get it get it there so but it's just about the timing of it
2: yeah because I, I mean because kaffir you mentioned the theming aspect to it and that's i think is the same argument that he would have is that you know yes theme is important but don't think about it ahead of time. Think about it after the fact. Be like, oh, what can I do? Oh, this theme is emerging. Yeah, what can I do to kind of stitch it together to get there? Well, and I think he's the same way with plotting. Like, and I maybe you could
1: argue, I don't right. know. Now that I'm just this is a, just a half-formed thought off the top of my head, but maybe story is kind of in between theme and plot. You know what I mean? Because you do, yeah. Although you you can't get bogged down in plotting, you do have to have an idea of where you're going generally, like you said with the story and theme. I have found in the past, I don't know if you guys are this way, but if I decide on theme so concretely so early it can result in my characters not feeling like characters like just feeling like yeah. mouthpieces yeah. for myself or just feeling yeah. like, I, feel like myself.
3: I write to an image a lot of the time like mm-hmm. it's totally plotless at the beginning you know i i okay i, I think my soapbox was maybe a little unfair to king <laughs> i know that king probably has opinions that would match up here i just think that i get really annoyed when people are like don't get into plot. Ew. Like it's so, it's a lesser species than. I,
1: I do think it's an, I agree. A, yeah. a, an icky word, especially in academic circles. Um, Yeah. And, and yeah, of course your characters need to be motivated and be complex and all that stuff too. But also like, yeah, I, do, I don't know. I do want the story to be good. You know, I love, uh, Hey, I love goosebumps. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, you brought up themes, Dan, and I, you and you kind of touched on this earlier. And I think that, that's one of the things that I what he says about theme here, I find very helpful. I think it's something that I struggled with as a writer is the idea of setting out to write something that is about something, where the story and the characters kind of are in the backseat because you're like, Well, I'm gonna write about I wanna write about this particular idea or this feeling, right? Mm-hmm. And um that to me has always been a recipe for disaster. And that's essentially what he says here is that theme finds you as you're writing a story about, you know, the people you want to write about the story you want to tell. Don't worry about theme because theme will emerge organically Uh, And I think that is, you know, some of the stuff I'm like, well, Mm -hmm. that's true for you, Stephen. That is an idea for me that I think is universal uh, in that every writer should sort of adhere to that, because if there are any boys in the basement that are working, perhaps they don't all work in that way plot wise or story wise for you. But I think thematically, it's always best when themes emerge organically, because and the thing is. A lot of times, it will be stuff that you've been kicking around in your head already that you wanted to write about. But so long as you don't let that like overtake it, it will start to emerge, like you know, like grass from the ground. Um, and so I love that, and I think that was the first time I'd ever really heard it phrased that way. When was when I read this book, and that's something that it's been a hard lesson for me to learn because I think sometimes I do get caught up in being like, I want to write about this idea. And then that's never helpful. So, so is it helpful
3: to differentiate between ideas slash agendas and obsessions? Because that's what always helps me is like being faithful to your obsession yeah, over yeah. anything else, like and and you get nervous because you're like ooh, this obsession might be a little
0: problematic but then <laughs> but then you write it what is it bill cosby or something <laughs> yes i'm writing a <laughs> fictionalized
3: novel. Right. mel is obsessed <laughs> with bill cosby, uh, bill cosby. No, no, fan it's fiction. not
0: bill cosby
3: you, heard you it here text first.
2: us the you text us the book cover it's like you you were hanging out with cosby yeah and... it was like a
0: weird <laughs> weird photoshop of you and
1: cosby very strange uh, um, um, i
3: do not support bill cosby.
1: i know we, <laughs> nobody does not take when no, we don't like Bill Cosby on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I, I will um, say, um, oh, go ahead.
2: Mike. Yeah, I mean, in in terms of, um, I just totally lost what I was going to say. I really access. want
3: to read your Jurassic Park novel. I think you should write I, it without no, outlining.
2: It was. Uh, I should actually go back to in writing it, especially since the franchise is derailed. Um, let's just say that my. I would say uh, we don't know that yet. Uh, let's wait until, <laughs> Dominion <comes> <laughs> out, <laughs> until Dominion comes
3: out. Oh, so if you well, saw how tenderly Chris Pratt put his hand on a para- pair of <laughs> snout in that trailer. I think no, we're going to see a whole I'm new side of the franchise.
2: I, I'm, I'm excited uh, to say the least. Um, I, I did want to mention, are we still kind of throwing out stuff that we liked about this? Yeah, session?
0: yeah, yeah. Stuff it's, that was helpful or that you liked. Yeah.
2: I don't know if it was so much helpful as it was just charming because I just think it's a natural process of us to find our ideal reader as he yeah. has here. But the, the the branding of the ideal readers, just I just love it. I mean, it's like we all have someone that we would show some of the, the, this stuff to or maybe we don't. I don't know. But I do think there are at least an ideal audience that we think of. And I, I don't know, I just, reading about him and Tabby and this, like, I, I there was a love story here. Like, there's like a really cute, like, anecdote that I, I want to read because I really liked it. He says uh, on page 262, I gave you the manuscript of my novel, my novella, Hearts in Atlantis, while we were in North Carolina where we'd gone to see a Cleveland Rockers, uh, Rockers, Charlotte Sting, WNBA game. We drove north to Virginia the following day. And it was during the drive that Tabby read my story. There's some funny parts in it. At least I thought so. And I kept peeking over at her to see if she was chuckling or at least smiling. I didn't think she'd notice, but of course she did. On my 8th or ninth peak, I guess it could have been my 15th. She looked up and snapped. Pay attention to your driving before you crack this up, will you? Stop being so goddamn needy. I paid attention to my driving and stopped sneaking peaks. Well, almost. About five minutes later, I heard a snort of laughter from my right. Just a little one, but it was enough for me. The truth is that most writers are needy, especially between the first draft and the second, when the study door swings open and the light of the world shines in. I mean, that's just... I, First off, great great yeah. capturing of a, of an image there of a scene, but I, I don't know. I just I just thought it was really interesting that you know, in the midst of him doing this memoir, in the midst of him trying to dis- describe you know discuss the craft, there's a love story here, and I really liked it. Like I, for me, that's that's so obsessed with trying to get in the mind of this this guy that we've been covering for better half a decade. I, it was that little things like that I just fucking love to death. So. Oh, I, I and I
1: it's, totally related okay. to too, because like I yeah, Susan reads all my shit before anyone else does, and. It, it does, like, it is weird because ultimately her approval or endorsement or positivity doesn't really matter, right? Like, she's not going to be in the room with it for most of the time. And uh, I I relate just that idea of, like, that nervous anticipation, right? <laughs> because, and, and her and I actually don't even have a lot of the same taste or see eye to eye on some of it. But it's funny because her criticisms about if, if she has feedback for me, it's usually always good and useful, but I always get so, like, in my head, like, personal about it right off the bat uh, like like what do you want to divorce me no no the other week like she um, <laughs> this, like play I was working on she uh she was like you know I just don't like don't know what these characters objectives are at the beginning and I was even like well that's just like a really actor thing to say you know I don't know if that's <laughs> like uh, and then I was like oh, I'll being such a fucking asshole but it's true like that it is I think it's uh, it's good for everyone to have that reader whether it's a friend or partner or whoever a mentor that you know, is gonna be the first that first stop, and is gonna be brutally honest with you too. Like I think that is such a, an important thing. So yeah, I just I just thought that was like a very sweet anecdote, and I I, I always like King and Tabby stories. They're always really fun. Do you uh do you think the
0: the the funny part he was referring to in Hearts in Atlantis was when Sully John sees the dead Vietnamese woman?
1: <laughs> i haven't wait I, I i need to reread that so what uh why what does he say is it horror is it like it's actually not funny, not funny at
2: all no, no sure that's the funny. joke
1: <laughs> <laughs> no i don't wait but but is it is it king trying to be funny and it's not or is it just really no, sad it's, it's like really sad yeah. and, and
0: it's a, a depressing
2: joke.
1: scene <laughs> It's <just a> Randall
0: <laughs> yeah. joke. yeah um okay other stuff we found helpful uh mike anything else that we haven't touched on yet that you found that you found helpful in this <laughs>
2: Uh, I, I mean, I think the fallacy of the writing classes, like I was, again, that kind of goes into what I was discussing last week of just him rallying against uh, academia sometimes. Cause I, I mean, for me, we already discussed that last week. So, but that was one thing I really did like hearing about. Cause I was just like, yeah, it's, they, 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 don't really work. And sometimes most of the time you spend a lot of fucking money on them and you don't really get a lot out of it. Like his descriptions of like the reactions, responses, and the, the sort of, uh, commentary that you get from your classmates are, are dead on. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'd get into the, and, and this is gonna sound pretentious to me, but I remember getting some stories and be like, oh, look, I'm not a good fucking writer, but I could at least do better than this. And now I'm gonna have to listen to someone like, that, that that wrote this that's gonna like be <laughs> publicly criticizing my work. And that mentality alone is why writing classes Aren't great for budding writers for me. Like I didn't really learn a lot from it, other than working one on one with my teacher or maybe one on one with my friend. Like, well, that's why you I, need
0: the ideal reader, right? You know. I, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I feel, and I do feel like the sad thing is like my ideal reader that I used to have, like her and I had a falling out, and it's like such a bummer because she was the best person to read my work, but she was not a good friend. You know what I mean? I'm just that's imagining so...
2: you going to her house now and just, hey, I got this story for you. Uh, get out <laughs> of here. You know? it's, but
0: it's a bummer though, like the, when your ideal reader is someone that is not compatible with your life and that is mm-hmm. such a bummer. And like, uh, and so I don't know, I feel like I'm in this process of, of of trying to find that ideal reader again. It's 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 a it's very tough, very interesting. I, let um, me be,
3: let me be a shill here. I uh, I support writing classes if they are what you need. I think you can get an MFA without going into debt. In fact, you can go to a fully funded program like I did if you apply carefully and build C&S. your skill. Um, and I found it incredibly transformative and useful. Of course, there were bureaucratic and shitty elements. Those are. Endemic to every creative writing program you will go to. Um, but if you are someone who just wants time, like just wants time to write. It's very true. Um, and and also is looking for readers, uh, that actually I think is a really good way to do it. I'm not saying they aren't capitalist industries or that you won't <laughs> oh, ever yeah, be no, mad. Not,
2: but yeah, I don't want it to like I don't want writing them off. I like I'm just saying I do like that there's at least an acknowledgement of Mm -hmm. like, they don't always work. Well, I feel like they, most of the time, at least growing up, I was like, yeah, just, you know, do that short story. You haven't done short story yet. Like (laughs) it was, (laughs) that
0: that I love that I think sums it up for me, which is too many writing classes make, wait a minute, explain what you meant by that, a kind of bylaw. And I, I love that sentence and I underlined it like 10 times because I feel like so often Like, this happened to me with playwriting a lot, too. I remember doing a reading and the director was sitting next to me and was like circling lines and putting big question marks by them. And they were just like, you mention a name here that's not mentioned anywhere else. And I was like, yeah, it's just a person mentioning their friend. Like, it's a bigger world than what you see. Like, and there's like, but we haven't met this person. I'm like, I don't need all these people to meet. You know what I mean? And it drives me crazy because I'm like, you're focusing too much on this small stuff. And you're saying, like, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by this? When sometimes it's like, let the whole thing speak for itself. Anyways, that's just me ranting. Well,
1: and I, I think too, I, I kind of way I guess, because obviously I'm with Mel with you know, having just come out of a program, but I also see what Mike's saying too. And I think a lot of it points to just knowing, A, knowing um, which readers are going to be valuable. Because I'll be honest, even in grad school, and I was surrounded by smart people and talented writers and all that stuff. But you're in a workshop long enough and you do get kind of a, a, a lay of the land and you go, okay, I think this person understands my work and maybe we share similar aesthetics. They're going to be a good reader for me. This person just isn't buying what i'm selling that's totally fine and i appreciate that they're giving me feedback but you know i think you do have to learn how to filter that out i mean randall i, I remember yeah, when exactly. um, we were doing a reading of a play of yours downtown this forever ago and it was a big crowd there and the talk back was going well for a while but then people just started latching onto the shit you're talking about like, well, oh yeah well uh, there's I, i'm just making this up but you know this scene takes place in a basement, but there's no stairs mentioned. So how? Are people- yeah, it wasn't that dumb, but like, say, no, I say remember like that. I was like losing my mind. And you and you like- just wrote on a because I was moderating the talk back, and you just wrote on a piece of paper, hey, they're you know, this is this is stop being useful. Let's just end this, and then we ended it. No, but you were exactly right because that I think I think knowing when to a when to like who to take the feedback from, how to filter it out and also when to stop sometimes because there you might be in a workshop yeah. and you're like okay, we've been going at this for 2 hours, I have everything I need. Yeah. I appreciate that you all have more to say but like I'm good. Let's get out of here so I can get back to work. Anyway, that's yeah, that's kind of how I look at it.
0: Yeah. Um as we wrap up this section, there's two just small things that I found interesting but unhelpful ultimately which was the way he writes about description and the way he writes about dialogue i found these very entertaining sections but i can't sum up enough how much he's like you can do it this way or you can do it this way but in the end just do whatever you want
3: like <laughs> yeah so you can go with that
0: yeah it's very much just kind of like you can sure you can uh You can under-describe a room and then people don't know where they are. Or you can over-describe a room and then it gets boring. Try to aim for somewhere in the middle. (laughs) It's like, thanks, (laughs) Steven.
3: I also love that he taxonomizes these things based on nothing except like literally what he sees on the page. Like narration, description, dialogue. Narration just means any writing that isn't majority description or dialogue. (laughs) Like it's just the isolated text on the page that isn't flowery or spoken words. And again, it's just like, this is written by an engineer, not a philosopher. And like, it's just kind of funny to me. Yeah.
0: And then um, I did find it interesting that he writes about getting an agent and um, getting published and stuff like that. And it's interesting he said it was because, easy.
1: <laughs> I was like, well, wait, yeah, yeah, and that's
0: the thing is, it's is, all outdated. All, it all was all already out, but it was like already outdated when the book came out, you know? Because when's the last time he had to get an agent or really get, pu- you know, do publishing, get published in the way where uh he actually had to convince someone to publish them, you know what I mean? It's so I I would say that those sections to me feel almost quaint in how outdated they are. Uh
2: but I feel like he does come around, he doesn't What was that? I feel like it's come around though. I, I mean, I know yeah, a lot how? of people that have agents. Well, just in the sense that like, I actually think it's easier again to get agents because everyone's starting to, everyone's looking for some way to make cheese, you know, like you might not get a great agent, but you'll get yeah. someone <laughs> like, I know people that have maybe been published twice and they're like, yeah, I'm working with my agent. And I'm like, what are you fucking talking about? I've been working with an agent. <laughs> right. I've been published you? Twice, you have, you have agent? Like, two reviews. Well, I, yeah, I mean, look, I, as you can see, I'm a great editor to work with, but like, I just, you know, I I was just flummoxed by it. It was like, you've had two reviews, They're less than a thousand words each. Like, how do you have a fucking agent already? And I'm just telling you, it's like, you could find one out there. Like, that's the thing. I just, I, I will, I, whether it's good, I don't know. I mean, you will get published by. Uh, I will say you know. like, I, 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 I did like. Yeah, you know, my hackles
1: raised up a little bit when I read that too cuz I'm, you know, as someone who doesn't have an agent and would love to have an agent right now. I was like, "Wait a minute." But I had uh, I, I won't say any names, but I, I I have seen a lot of in maybe in my mind and maybe I'm just being bitter, uh, undeserving people get agents <laughs> the, the past few years. It's also
3: funny <laughs> that I feel like you're the only one of the four of us who's published a book and you
1: don't you don't have an agent. No, well, I yeah, that's I had kind the of, option to go with the agent effort. who who um sought me out for that but he's he's really primarily non-fiction um got pop it. culture criticism which we've he's just uh, in away prison
0: from. now no Don't no he's that. great he actually <laughs> actually between fun. lawyers
1: right now um, no he's no he's actually
0: excellent. it's uh stephen king himself
1: so. well <laughs> that's grammar. not stephen king himself it's kelsey not kelsey grammar. grammar but no he he it I'll is funny though book. he does teach at the university of maine and um has been on, he's, he doesn't know Stephen King, but he's, he's a, I think he's Canadian and he went to, he, he was at the same school as him and shit. Anyway, bottom line being, I I still do some pop culture criticism, but, um, I I guess like a, a, an agent for, uh, playwriting or screenwriting that has eluded me so far. Yeah. I've seen a lot of other people get it. The one thing
0: that I think is true here is the, like, cause he got his agent through a contact, like through one of his old professors who liked his work and then passed it along to somebody. That's how I got my agent. And, um, and I think that that's how a lot of people, I think that's the majority way that you're going to get an oh, totally. these days is who you know. I don't think that there's a lot of blind submissions going on these days. Uh, I mean, I, th- I know that there is to some degree, but I think by and large, it's about who you know, who can help you. And um, and I mean, that's how, that was true back when King was young and it's true now. Um, there are more traditional ways to go about those things. Same with getting published. But I think, so much of this business and this is what king perhaps has forgotten to some degree is that it's all about who you know it's not often about talent you know so it's true
3: both are true though i just want to say that the slush pile both in submitting to lit mags like that's real you can you can still actually get if people say like oh no one can get published out of the slush pile you you really can so like keep submitting i know a lot of people who've done it including myself and agent stuff too, like they are reading blind submissions. Like, don't think that if you don't know anybody, you can't get an agent. You you definitely can. Uh, but Randall is right that like, if you know people, it's a lot easier. And
2: listen, oh, if there's you. any Never agents listening networking. to this with code, what do you say, uh, Ruff? Oh, I was going to say never stop networking. Yeah. I, mean, oh, no, I, all, yeah. I can't tell you. I mean, fuck, the current place I'm with it now is, is literally because, you know, met at a con in person and, you know, just networked. Like, I mean, it's just you never know who's going to help you down the road. I mean, and, and that's that's just the case with everything. I mean, that's that goes beyond writing. I mean, that, I mean, I wish I would have listened to my dad more often. I mean, he used to say his his big line was bring always bring bagels to the bank. And, and I'd be like, what the fuck does that mean? And and he's like, he's like, well, just make sure that they're happy. You know, make sure, you know, like always, always make sure they, they you know, they remember you, right. You know, like be getting their memory banks and like, and honestly, like that's a, I don't know, it's good advice. I mean, granted, if you do something for like shitty and then you're in their memory banks, not good advice, <laughs> but, um, then it works against you. I, but ultimately I think that's, uh, you know, the trick of the trade in anywhere and in any just industry. just want to- I want like an oily, like Coke-fueled, <laughs> aggressive agent who is going Daniel! to kill for me. Exactly. He, he I just my thought mind. that you were when you were saying, oh, I'm a- away from age, I just kept thinking of Wayne's role. And it's like, uh, well, I, yeah, I just grabbed that lawyer by his big fat head. And I said, <laughs> I said, I said hey, I'm not going to jail for you, you or, or anybody, any man. <laughs> That's what I want. Um,
0: I think the ultimate lesson, and King says this, is that there are no master secrets to writing which is a very funny thing to put, uh, you know, near the end of your on writing book, but it's also very true. And again, Mel, you've pointed this out, is that King does ultimately understand that he's writing from, this is how I write, maybe this will help you. And I think the fact that he wrestles, and we talked about this a bit in the last episode but the fact that he wrestles so much throughout the book with why am i writing this i think is uh very honest and very approachable and and very helpful but yeah he does ultimately near the end of this just say look this is all stuff that might help you or it might not there are no master secrets but um but i think is obviously true based on this discussion there's a lot we pulled from it that's helpful and a lot of it that we're just kind of like uh no no that does not
3: work. <laughs> no, nope. so, And I think uh, he'd be
1: fine with that too. And I, I like, Once oh, again I, I yeah. think all you can do is anyone writing a kind of book like this it, um, is say, this is who I am. This is my experience with it. Take what's useful. Throw away, throw, throw away what's not in the slush pile, but then maybe someone will pick it up. I, I think and, he'd wrap and...
3: our knuckles with a ruler for not writing every
1: day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like, if there's one thing to take away from this book, write every day. I wish I had someone to wrap me in the knuckles.
0: So let's move on to the last section of the book. It's called On Living. And this is where, this is adapted, I believe, full cloth, if not, it might have been reworked a little bit for the book, from a New Yorker article um, that was called On Impact. And it was sort of his first attempt. Well, not first, because I think most of this is the same from the New Yorker piece to this. But it's him sort of dealing with this accident, the car accident that hit him, that, um, you know, that he experienced while he was in the midst of writing this book and that, you know, obviously, as we discussed on the pod would come to color the rest of his career uh, and his work in various ways. We have an entire episode in our Patreon all about the accident, very in-depth. Uh, me, Mike, and Jen tackle that one, and that's, uh, that's in our archive series. So check that out for us. And we do quote sections from on writing here, from this section and on writing in that episode. So check that out if you want sort of a more comprehensive discussion of this piece. I think how we're going to approach this today is more the question of why do we think he included it in this book? And um, what do we think it contributes to sort of this ongoing discussion about writing?
1: Um, what do you guys think? I think it's be, I, for me, I think it's the learning how to write again part of yeah. it and the, yeah, and the 100%. building the desk and the, in the pantry because a it obviously humanizes him a bit. He's we've talked already, right? Okay. He's this literary giant. He's maybe a little bit far removed from some of the earlier career things he's talking about. And he arguably had, to, he didn't have to scrape his way up connections wise, but he did have to learn how to write again. And I think you know, he talks a lot about life informing art and vice versa and et cetera. And I think that's that last section is just a testament to that. Like he kind of stuck with these tricks that he's used the whole time and he was able to claw his way out of it. And also too, I think just showing how much he needed to depend on his family, both emotionally, mentally, physically, Um, which he, he references a lot in the rest of the book too. Like not, not secluding yourself, opening yourself and letting the world. And that's, that's what it meant for me.
0: Yeah. I think
3: it's, that he writes drafts in three months and this disrupted his draft and then he (laughs) had i'm serious and then he had to go back and finish it like it's just an essential part because it's what happened within those three months and and obviously yes he learned how to write again um i i think this section is like so gripping the writing is like really just um vivid and the description of what things feel like, the collapsed lung, the mm-hmm. like flashing in out of consciousness. Did you guys notice that he can't help but do King foreshadowing of his own? Yes. yes. I, I underlined
2: <laughs> I <love> thing. <laughs> uh, That's the thing. The ultimate when, King foreshadowing. <laughs> and,
1: and even imagistically, uh, for real, the, when I think of on writing as a book, um, I, I think of him in the in a pantry and I always just pictured the pantry Susan and her roommates had in, the, in their apartment back in the day. But I picture him sitting in there and trying to do this and wincing and calling for his wife. Like that's, that's mm-hmm. like the image, the same way that, uh, you know, the skeleton crew images, the monkey with the symbols. That's why I think it for this book. I just, I just think it's a really rewarding rich uh, piece of imagery that he puts in there. And I mean, it's obviously it came from his real life.
3: I think of the sentence um, for some reason, this is the King sense that sticks in my mind from, from this section of this book, the pain in my hip was just short of apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. I'm like God, that accident was so bad. Oh, it's bad. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the language he uses to describe it is so vivid and it would come to, I think, in so many ways, haunt future books like Dreamcatcher, like Duma Key and several others. And um, it was a pain that I think was so deep because it affected him, you know, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally and creatively. And, you know, he and I think the reason he includes it here and uh, and he reflected on it with Entertainment Weekly when they put it on their list of like, you know, the hundred Uh, essential books of since 1983 or something like that. And it was, uh, he says, he was reflecting on the year uh, 1999. And he said, it was the year I wrote on writing, the bulk of the work being done post-accident. That was a terrible, painful process, but the work itself seemed like salvation. Uh, And just that word salvation, I think is important because I think ultimately he begins the book with this autobiography of his early life. And he ends it with more autobiography about, you know, this really important moment where the writing that, you know, helped him develop who he was when he was young would come to serve as a sort of salvation in this time of, you know, complete bodily destruction. And so I think it's actually a really lovely and um, and kind of sad and redeeming way of ending the book is uh, showing the way that writing has, you know, been this... Um, lifeline throughout his life and has kept him going because um, he also talks about his uh, sobriety as well and the way that um you know that almost derailed him from his path as well writing and his family are the two things that have sort of been with him the entire way and so I think ending it with that is is clearly very important to him and um you know makes it a, a more richer book I think Mike Mike what were you gonna say well I just think it's natural
2: I mean I think it's it was the natural ending I mean it, it, to This is a guy who loves gallows humor, but I mean, the the ending, the ending hit him just in the same way that like, you know, his ideas did. I mean, like when you think about it from a a narrative level, a structural level, a spiritual level and a thematic level, like this all weaves everything in together. It's like this is the ending he like it's 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 just the natural ending for this book and the fact that it has to do with his you know obviously is his life is one of the most arguably the most important thing that's happened to him in a way um the you know the, he beat death <laughs> i don't know it just kind of feels like a joke that he'd make where you know, just it's like uh you know the, the the ending just came to me you could say it hit me like i could just i could just see him <laughs> writing that well, they, and and Even, I don't know like, like
1: reporting wise didn't people say that when this came out like oh in a in a tale right from one of his own novels
2: I feel like that would like Oh all 100% oh, yeah it's in every one of the news stories that we had to research it's like every writer thought they were so clever saying that and like but I mean the, <laughs> I, I don't know I just think like it just is such a it would it would almost be it would be so shocking if this wasn't part of the book and it had been released in 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 2000 and I and I think ultimately you would hurt the book if it wasn't because this is what makes it it makes it land and it also spiritually just it brings everything together and like it also makes this book feel that much more honest whereas like and present point, it's just it just I happened present yeah yeah exactly yeah so, so this i don't know book it's just called a, a memoir of the
0: craft what's more memorable when we come out of this book is it the memoir or is it the craft? Is it him writing about his life or is it him writing about writing? What would you guys say?
3: my good, my good lad, they are inseparable. They are are one and the same.
1: I would say memoir. I I mean, there are a lot of craft things. I remember even at at my day job the other day, a a new writer we hired had brought up like um, the adverb thing and a couple other things. Like I I do, I, I shouldn't say I remember nothing about the craft elements of it because I do. But I, like I said, I, I remember the crash, him and Tabby in the desk in the pantry, him at this big dinosaur desk, and then invite, but then downsizing and inviting his kids. It's all dinosaurs. To watch TV. With you i know hey hey i I love how i mel do you have a jurassic park ripoff somewhere i love how mike randall and i all have have our own jurassic park stories <laughs> from when we were younger but uh yeah i don't know if you do you have stuff with I, I like
0: had, i had more embarrassing stuff don't worry
1: you had, but you have stuff with i mean you have very good contemporary things with pre-historic Well you probably
0: have like pokemon and, stuff and pokemon's like uh, uh, uh dino adjacent oh, oh yeah i did pokemon <laughs> role playing for sure but, uh you were saying what you remember about the book on writing day.
3: yeah, no
1: yeah <laughs> no I, I I think for me it's it's definitely the memoir aspect of it, not because I don't like the craft element, but i I, I will say maybe it's because I'm older now. I do find the memoir half not half even like I'd say three fourths of it more useful to me as a writer. And once again, it's storytelling, right, and that's what he's good at. So I, yeah, for me, it's definitely the memoir element of it
3: i uh, I do think it's know. the the whole book is a memoir. The craft yeah. parts are also memoir. It's just all
0: memoir.
2: it's
3: yeah. a
0: memoir,
2: yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's why I that's why I lean on memoir. Do you think
0: we'll ever get a proper autobiography from King after this? I don't think oh. so. Uh,
2: I think someone will. I mean, I I'm surprised reading this. I'm surprised that they haven't done. We haven't gotten some, you know, fucking bullshit indie <laughs> Sundance movie. <laughs> you know, that's like it him, is weird, isn't it? You well, know, like, you know what? how he made also. Carrie, and it's just like them living in a trailer, and someone <laughs> made it for like ten bucks, and it's like you know. Scoop McNary as like Stephen Scoop. King, and he's like slumming it for this. That's fucking actually not bad that casting. Know.
1: That's
0: yeah, not yeah, casting but, you,
1: know. And it, it would be like. It'd Tabby's, be funnier if
0: it was like Brad Pitt or something.
1: Ta, it would be Tabby <laughs> finding the manuscript and then looking at it, and then like Machine Gun by the Commodores just starts to play, and then it cuts to him like making all this money. <laughs>
3: yeah, <No>, but <laughs> Brad Pitt and Stephen King actually have a similar head
0: shape.
1: Like they do, I think actually, they have I think they brown, could actually make yeah.
0: that work. Yeah, I, actually, you're right. That a was great a great story,
1: babe.
2: I know why I don't think he'll get like Timothy
0: Chalamet. I I don't...
2: God. And and Zendaya is like tabby. Zendaya. Oh,
1: man.
2: That's Oh, I love that.
1: um, I I don't think... I don't know. I could see him getting a biopic. I don't think he'll ever get some super thick, prestigious biography, because there's not a lot of mystery about him as a guy, and I like that about him. I like that he's not this literary lion. I like that there's not this, oh, we have to exist. He actually is very... Um, negative when he talks about his drug experiences and all, all the juicy stuff that you would be like oh we need to unravel this part of him I think he's like no I was a fucking drunk and an addict and that's not interesting so I, I don't know if we'll ever get some kind of thick like Philip Roth <laughs> autobiography yeah. marred by controversies of the writer um, hey, I know
2: but, we will we, yeah. I know we'll get one what? it's called the losers club a Stephen King podcast that's been covering <laughs> you from it. You're beginning listened to end i a just coming from inside costume. the
0: house yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's give this. Uh, let's give this some nose rankings, Mike. You want what to am- talk at all about the? Uh, do you guys have the fourteen oh eight edits in your edition? Oh, yeah, I they're, do, they're- but I. Uh, what do you? What would you like to say about them, Mel?
3: They're so sparse. They're just line edits. I remember thinking they were very useful, but now I feel like yeah, I, it doesn't get at what's actually difficult about I, writing. That's I, I kind of no, no, no.
1: <laughs> I skipped over. I, I, what I did like was the. I mean, you can find these materials elsewhere, but I, I did like the inclusion of the essay by owen hill uh, owen hill owen king uh where he talks about being paid to do these audiobooks by his dad and then also the (laughs) interview with joe hill and not i mean and honestly it's not like i think it's going to inform what he says about writing so much i don't think you're gonna read that and be like oh this is the this is the key to everything i think it's just what are the big
0: takeaways from that
1: well for me well i mean honestly owen owen uh i keep say owen hill owen king (laughs) just pretty much talks about you know, his dad kind of brained the love of writing into the family and yeah, you know, paying him to do these audiobooks when he was younger. And Joe, the conversation with Joe Hill and Stephen King, um I mean, they, he does ask some he does ask some pretty pointed questions about the craft. But I wouldn't say it's anything that you don't already get in the book. What I do like about it is they just he really does in a very authentic way, I think, just talk about how grateful he is. and how he's lucky to be still happy and satisfied and fulfilled doing this at such an old age that's i think that's a really nice way to end it i think because also so much of the it's a memoir so much of the book is about his life and about his family It just feels right to end on his family as a little bit of a coda so yeah i don't think there's anything profound to glean from those sections but it's it's just like a nice warm way to end the book i think
0: yeah cool uh well, let's do uh, nose rankings, Mike. How many bright red Pennywise clown noses would you give on writing a memoir and craft? A memoir <sighs> okay. the craft.
2: I, I I have to compose myself because I I I just got this image in my head of of um of them <laughs> <Yeah>. like going <laughs> of them going to like a Thanksgiving dinner and um. <laughs> And like, first off, like them all sitting down, it's like, oh, uh, oh, and how are you doing? It's, it's, it's actually, uh, Owen Hill now. And he's like, you're (laughs) taking that goddamn name again, that Joe, it's like this huge debate. And like, they just like, it's like, what's wrong with my name? You can't use my name. And just like, uh, just the image of them just fighting over something like that anyway was um, like hey Naomi you want to take Hill everyone else oh, you want to good hey Molly you <laughs> want to be called hey want to be call and Molly and he like, looks the at Joe of... and he's just like look what you've started with that fucking <laughs> pseudonym he's like let's just,
1: let's just name Molly the thing of Eve Hill while you're at it he <laughs> just throws the turkey across and I'm like I don't even want uh, this
2: <laughs> it's king I don't even want
1: king <laughs> it's king why
2: wouldn't you want your last name to be king it's a mighty name <laughs> I'm glad I was able to I, I had to it's just literally like cackling on the, on the side with the idea of them fighting um Cause there is a photo. If you look up like of them all sitting at the din- dining room in their house. And I just imagine them just getting in a huge argument and just Tabby sitting there drinking like, like her, like coffee or something, just being like, Oh, here we go again. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, this actually f- plays into my final thoughts. Cause as you know me, I, I love getting into, into the world of King and not just the, his fiction writing, but just him as a person. And this was just a joy. I mean, for me, I'm trying to think of the last title that was this hyped for me going into this book. Like, I'd say this out of most of the titles we've covered in the last three years uh, were so hyped. I mean, like everyone and their mother, literally. Uh, like, I've literally had mothers come and be like, "Have you read that? That's a good book." They all talked it up, um, and and it's exactly what I expected. I mean, it's it's just it's a tunnel into this guy that we've devoted half of a decade and change to. And that was a total fucking joy. I mean, and, you know, to see, and we talked about it in, I think last episode, but like to see some of these insights that we've been kicking around manifest on the page. I mean, for me, that alone was enough of a hook to keep going. But then really like what I love most about this book is just how pragmatic it is. Like about writing about everything. I mean, like I've used that word a lot and I think it's going to be one, I just keep attributing to king and it's just his sense of pragmatism and um i think i'll keep pointing this book whenever i redundantly keep saying that but in terms of the craft aspect of it like i i think it's kind of great in the sense that he's never really too idealistic but he's also like never too cynical either it's kind of like this straight arrow read that's pretty affable and yet also rewarding and i, I don't know i think I think any of our constant listeners listening to these two episodes can see that we learned something from it. So, I mean, I don't know, what more do you want from that? So I, for me, it's four by half, bite-wed Pennywise clown noses. Um, and maybe a little bit of aloe for the, the poison ivy um, uh, <laughs> genitals or uh, whatever, the, you know, the getting all over his ass and stuff. Mel,
0: nose rankings.
3: I think I want to start by saying I'm, I want to walk back my, while your brain is still developing answer to the great writer question, just because I want to be more optimistic. And I feel like great writers can happen later in life, right? You can like not have written anything and like maybe learn. Anyway, I disagree. I felt felt bad. I think you can do it. Don't feel bad. Okay. I won't feel bad, but I feel bad. (laughs) Final thoughts. I think this is a hugely valuable, unique craft book that does what most craft books aren't aware they should do And that is drop the dream of universality and of generalization and burrow into your personal little den that you've made for yourself and show us what's strange about it. Oh, you think good writing is a combination of narrative, description, and dialogue? Oh, you were drunk at your mother's funeral? Like, these are the elements of you showing us around your weird home and like explaining all the taxidermy that you bought and like speaking lackadaisically about things that are normal to your world, maybe normal to ours, but also maybe like totally alien and fucked up. And again, I think the book is strong because it's so myopic insofar as it is rooted firmly in like one life, one mind. And because that mind is like, so it's so dynamic. It's so antsy on the page. He's like a shark in this. He's like always in motion and the motion is not premeditated. We can tell we're there while he's writing this. I do think he wrote it in, in, you know, one kind of spurt he kind of just did he read it over to himself many times like I feel like it'd be worse if he had like this feels drafty like like a first or second or third draft in a way that I think is really beneficial to it it smacks of freewheeling thought to me it's only slightly directional but because it's on a subject dear to the author and because the author is gifted and that's exactly what we want we want to hear him like step up to the podium and basically improvise we want to see what comes out of its mouth And some of it is crisp and devastating and some of it is like smudged and hard to parse, but it's all earnest and it brings us close to him, to his theories and to his style and even the unconscious bits, the quirks he can't shake from even his nonfiction. He can't help but put his writing quirks in there and an attempt to explain the craft of writing, like all of writing can only ever be an attempt to explain yourself, I think. And he's totally game. He tries. He, He does the attic room floor, attic floor memory toss-up and tries to analyze and observe. He also doesn't want to ascribe too much meaning to any one thing. He just wants to gather everything up. And the process tells us as much as the product. It's all there, the working and the work, which is the really enjoyable part for me. That reflects back on itself. It's what he's writing about. It's like fractal in that way. And that it becomes like bottomless from all angles. Like here's the process of me writing. I'm examining the process of me writing. I'm doing it right now, but what is it? And it's been really special to me in a whole bunch of ways. Like at first I came to it thinking it was a simplistic guide. It was gonna teach me how to write. And now it's this sort of kaleidoscopic lens on the art of craft books and on the art of grace and on the art of memory. And in looking at one unique human who's examining himself, we find all these inroads of connection And it's this big contradiction all over. Like it's grand, it's unassuming, it's specific, and it's broad. And it's finding a new surprising way to say something recognizable. And that makes it good writing. That's what all good writing is. Uh, It's a five five noser for me. Five out of five. I just love the experience of reading this book and being present with King. When you said five
0: noses, I imagine like a jackpot, like boom, 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 boom. And then the coins are
1: flowing out at your Even feet. Even the part,
3: like I obviously have huge problems with some parts of it. And that's just like part of my enjoyment of it at this point. Yeah. Dan.
1: I'm also going to give it a five noses. Uh, I don't know if I can put it much more eloquently than that. But yeah, for me, I mean, it's just undeniably King. And that's what I love about it. Warts and all. I mean, I'm always going to value just getting the pureness of his perspective. And I can't think of any other writer's books that are such a statement on living and how to balance out living with writing and which is more important than the other and just weaving all of that together. And also to just from like a pure junk food standpoint. I mean, if you love, I don't know any, it's funny because obviously they're ubiquitous King books that everyone agrees upon. Everyone loves the stand, right? Everyone loves the shining. I think those books have flaws, but those are kind of considered his classics. But I would argue this one almost feels more universally adored. And I don't think that's because, Every single person who reads it wants to be a writer or is a writer, but I think... Everyone who reads it just likes finding out more about Stephen King. I don't think you'll get any more bigger insights into his life and how he feels about all this stuff than this book. Um, I mean, I, I, in a way, it, it, I mean, we joked about it, but it weirdly does feel like one of his novels. So, yeah, five all the way. And just reads well, too, man. I mean, it just it, it clips along. I like the length of it. It's it's just that uh, it's easy on the eyes. It's easy on short. The ears. It's super <laughs> short. I love it, though. It's, I mean, And I love that yeah. he's aware of that. He's like, I'm going to make this short. Um, I'm going to do my thing and get out of here. It just feels so purely him in a way that some of his novels don't even. Um, so, yeah, I think if you're if you're a King fan, this is essential reading, much like The Elements of Style. So five out of five.
0: <laughs> I'm going to balance things out by giving it four and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses out of five. And I think I'll just put it this way. You know, when I approach a book about the craft, I quote my good man, Arnold. Come on, don't bullshit me. <laughs> and... Uh... And he doesn't in this book. It's probably the only book about craft that I that I've ever really loved and uh, felt like I I took something from. So, yeah, I think that about sums it up. Uh, This was a really fun episode. This was a good time. Uh, Mike, what do we have coming up?
2: Oh, my God. Uh, what do we have coming up? Well, the next book episode is going to be Dreamcatcher. Uh, so, uh, yeah, get ready for that one. Which he um, wrote in an
0: opiate haze.
2: Yeah, and it definitely shows. Uh, but uh, I'm very excited to to be talking about that one. And then uh, we'll also be doing, because of uh, my own um, sort of uh, hallucinogenic state, um, I was uh, unable to get the long watch episode for The Shining out this week, so this is the, the The Shining episode is now coming out after on writing, so you can look forward to that as you have been all this last month. We got a great episode uh, coming with Jed Shepard, who uh, wrote and produced Host, in addition to the forthcoming Dashcam. Uh and then uh we I believe we have a Souls Midnight that's gonna be tied to uh Dreamcatcher that we're kicking around. Um the idea of government cover ups. Uh yeah. that would be kind of that'll be fun. Not just on alien faces. Not just on <laughs> alien faces. <'cause, laughs> Although you know, there's
0: like pure alien face in Dreamcatcher, which I I'm excited.
3: Yeah. Spoiler yeah. alert,
0: I'm gonna be on that episode. I'm very you
3: excited
2: are. You yeah, are it's gonna be a good up. Oh, we got one more. They actually oh, you're on. Uh we're gonna be covering Wendy's final task. Uh oh, and yeah. Oh, too. Duh, yeah. Uh in our Patreon. Again, if, if you aren't a member of our Patreon, what are you doing? Get uh, patreon.com slash the barons. Um, when I say that there are hundreds of hours of content, that is not hyperbole. There yeah. are literally hundreds of hours of content on there. Yeah, so.
0: we've got in our Dark Tower Detour series that uh, Dan Caffrey has been on and Dan Flieger hosts. Uh, we just interviewed Richard Chismar, who uh, co-wrote Gwendy's Final Task, as well as the other Gwendy books. And um, yeah, so we already have a chat with him that's up. That's great. And then we are going to be, uh, talking about the book in our Patreon as we have been doing the new King books um, are always going to be behind the paywall until you know we reach them in our chronological reread all the books in our chronological reread are always going to be free so but yeah if you want uh, to hear our thoughts on Gwendy's final task which I think you're going to want to because this is this is an interesting book um, you're going to want to uh, head over to the Barons. but so yeah check that out leave us a review on iTunes uh, Facebook or wherever it is you get your podcasts and can I, and, I just say thanks uh, yeah, doing this episode guys writing is very personal I think we got a little
1: personal or at least I got we, more personal oh, than I, I'm
3: used to getting and so I think, I think we
1: totally did especially last time which was good I mean that in a in a good way thank you Kelsey Grammar
0: it's a mess. coming again
1: okay let's sign off
0: long days and <laughs> and pleasant, pleasant nights
2: night. nice. see, see the all the children, toss salad and scramble thanks. <laughs> I got some
3: Hot friends. I got some, hot friends. I gotta get some hot friends. but you know you want somebody to treat
1: you good.
0: this is the end of our show for now we hope you enjoyed this production if you like our programming consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden,
2: and more. Uh, they're coming again.